a world filled with fast-paced living and constant demands on the aging body, it's easy to forget some of the simplest yet most essential elements of our well-being, hydration and nutrients. As you know, when I'm not in the studio recording a podcast or in the gym or out in the scrub hunting, putting rounds downrange, I'm somewhere in the world on a security gig, putting in the hard yards, ending up on TikTok. So legends that get some, keep me advancing forward, Jocko Fuel Supplements. More specifically, I've been smashing the Jocko Hydrate Sachets, which helps me replenish my electrolytes and other critical vitamins while boosting energy and supporting recovery. Also, just like my kids, my appetite for veggies goes as far as hot chips from the kernel. However, every morning I'll mix a scoop of Jocko Greens, Jocko Creatine into water, which helps me supplement my lack of and delivers all the nutrients for better gut health, immune support, cognitive function, and physical performance. And not to mention, tastes bloody good. So head over to www.getsome.com.au and use the code Zero Limits all in caps for a discount. I'll leave you with this for the day. Hard work, clean fuel, stronger, faster, smarter, better. Let's go. It's time for the Zero Limits Podcast, hosted by Australian veterans. Chatting with high-charging humans with hectic stories from around the world, we'll give you the motivation to take on whatever life throws at you and the kick to complete any goal you set your mind to. Let's go. Zero Limits listeners on today's Zero Limits podcast, I have another guest here in the studio and he's a bit of a world traveler these days. I guess he's been a world traveler for most of his life. Uh, part of his life was carrying a gun. Uh, now he's uh, pretty much carrying cameras, which is, which is uh, you know, a big part of his life of what he does now. His name is Mark Doreen, former SASR operator, uh, originally from the 1st Battalion. Uh, he runs a company now called uh, Point Assist, which uh, originally was a security company, morphed into more of a, a world traveling and photo and uh, exhibition, more, um, I guess, showing people all around and uh, consulting. But we'll definitely talk about it a bit further and then... One thing uh, most of the listeners probably have seen is his uh, photography uh, exhibition uh, called Point and Shoot. Now, basically, there's these exhibitions that uh, travel around Australia, gets a whole bunch of photos from veterans. Uh, they're put up on display. People of all walks of life come through, check these photos out, and uh, it's been it's actually been a smash hit. And uh, I was lucky enough to have one of my photos selected, uh, which we'll definitely talk about later. But Mark Dream, mate, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Yeah, thanks for having me. No, appreciate awesome you, mate. Awesome to be here. Yeah, mate, especially here in Newcastle. Now, you're just up here and just getting your ute fixed. I think you've got a yeah, new, uh, fridge new put in. life support system for me to travel around Australia in, so yeah, it's going to be all set up. Probably yeah. a bit more comfortable than I'm used to with a fridge and batteries. And, but uh, <laughs> as, you, as you said, I want to charge me camera batteries now. So. Yeah, mate, you're a content creator now, so... <laughs> He's no, walked a, in here with, with yeah with all tripods and <laughs> it's content content creator life yeah it's a different yeah. life mate mate um now what I want to do let's let's talk about your life now I've heard of, heard of your story on a bunch of other podcasts we've been yep. chatting for probably far out six to eight months I reckon like, yeah this is one of those podcasts I wanted to do face to face and I knew our times would uh, meet which they have now so what we want to do mate let's just start off right from the start let's get back to the younger days of Mark growing up mate run us through schooling. You know, brothers, sisters, et cetera, and obviously what led to you joining the Defence Force? 
Yeah, um, Tassie in the in the eighties and very early nineties as was pretty much me. I think I only left the state for a weekend in my teens to go to the footy in Melbourne uh, with the local footy club, the little league club that I was playing for. So never really left the state, but mum and dad were, uh, or dad especially, fishing and camping and, and hunting. You know, we were always, every weekend, I think, growing up, I was away from home, you know, throw the mini bike in the back of the back of the car on the trailer and off we'd go fishing. A lot of time on the water as a kid because dad loved it. Yeah. Um, but uh, Tassie, um, older brother, younger sister, still both going well and um, families of their own. And so that was me. I think I wasn't a big fan of schooling when I was growing up. I think that's a bit of a theme with the blokes you yeah, get on the po- podcast. I, you know, I wasn't bad at school. I just didn't really care for it much. Didn't um, apply yourself. Nah, that's what it says in the, nah, the I, I did, you know, I scraped by with a – with a bare minimal pass and yeah. and uh, and it was pretty keen to get out of there as soon as I could. I mean, uh, I think I played little league and, and rode dirt bikes as a kid. wasn't really super sporty, but I think really early on I was probably about 13 or 14 and I was pushing trolleys in the local supermarket. Oh, yeah. yeah First so job. Just start, you know. Trolley boy. I want to roll that pocket money in. I, I was actually like annoyed because I had to give up playing footy, which I enjoyed, but I wasn't, you know, wasn't a star footballer. So I was like, well... I'll go to work. Um, so I started working pretty young, you know, still in high school, I think. And um, yeah, and just started that. Yeah, mate. Tro- trolley boy. Now, yeah, this, yeah. Back eventually promoted to yeah. uh, casual in charge of the dairy case, I think. Back in the, yeah, <laughs> back in those days, trolley boys, like that was the that was the primo job for a teenager. Yep. That was my first job. Oh, well, yeah. My, and my, the supermarket I worked at, for any Tasmanians out there, um, was Coles in Newtown near the Kmart there. And so the car park runs downhill. From the uh, from the actual supermarket, so it was always uphill push oh, with the no. trolleys, and it was always you know, I suppose setting goals early. How many trolleys can I <laughs> get in this stack before they're too heavy to get up the hill to? Yeah, <laughs> far out. The trolley <laughs> boys the these days wouldn't know them. I've seen them with oh, their, their little motorized things now. Yeah. Far out, <laughs> kids these days, bloody hell, mates. Uh, in regards to schooling, your siblings did. Sorry, just quickly, like uh, moving forward. Did your siblings, did they, were they cops or uh, join the military or anything or they're just – No, my my brother um, left school and worked in the banking industry oh, no, actually and did that for quite a while but I think he himself tried to chase a bit more um, freedom. So to move into business on his um, – with that actually, he ended up as a builder um, and they were a good clash of minds I think where dad was very hands-on good at building and my brother was very business smart, business brain, you know, financial sort of background. And so they built quite a successful business. Yeah, dad's retired now, um, but my brother's still Yeah, so your brother and sister, how were they at school? Were they? Um, oh, to be honest with you, you know, do you, I don't, I was too worried about my failures to worry. Yeah. I think my yeah. brother did all right. Um, my sister was probably a bit more like me. She struggled through and got out of there as mm. soon as she could. Uh, she runs her own business now too, though, so um, doing fine. And, um, yeah, my, I do remember though growing up, my brother was the sportsman yep. in the family. You know, he, he'd have no dramas making the, the footy side and, uh, and then summer would kick in and he'd switch straight over to cricket and, you know, he'd be bowling and batting. So, uh, he played basketball as well. So I actually yeah. do remember growing up, my brother a couple of years older than me, but he was the sporty one in the family. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. Now in regards to family history, uh, military, first responder, anything in your... Bloodline? Not really first responder. I do 
uh, just recall stories from the family. My father had a couple of uh, great, you know, grand uncles that served in uh, in World War Two, and uh, my un- my grandfather on my mum's side served in Darwin and New Guinea, and uh, then his son, his oldest son, actually, uh, my uncle Gary, he served in. Uh, he was a career soldier, so I'm not sure if he did twenty or not, but did a stint in Vietnam, and uh, so I do. I my mum. I think had a bit more of an idea about the military just from mm. her family um, growing up. Yeah. Funnily enough, she was the one eventually mum that said uh, when I was wanting to get out of school and year 10, I was trying to get a motor mechanics apprenticeship and, you know, trying going for, going for jobs, trades that I could get into in Tassie and, and um, unemployment was pretty, pretty high in Tassie mm. in the early nineties. Jobs weren't easy to come by. And it was a mum eventually that said, Hey, why don't you try and get a apprenticeship in the army? And so, yeah, I thought, yeah. Well, I actually enjoyed the army, you know, I loved war movies as a kid and loved hunting and being in the outdoors and running around the bush, shooting rabbits. And so, oh yeah, well, I don't know why I don't. Little, little did she know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she caused herself all that stress over the years. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, in regard to that, obviously we we're talking early 90s. So, you know, this is a quite a quiet period for the Australian Defence Force, you know, post uh, Vietnam. You yep. know, we've got a couple of small conflicts here and there. It's more peacekeeping or UN assist type things. So, mate, what was your knowledge on the Defence Force at that stage? Um, platoon, I think, the movie. <laughs> and a yeah. few novels, yeah. a few yeah. um, – a few Ameri- probably American too. I'd probably read some American Vietnam War novels and things like that. I, you know, any 17, 16, 17-year-old thinks he knows a bit about something, I like it, knew nothing, ridiculously nothing. And I remember um, – saying to mum and dad, oh, I've been accepted, I'm going into the army. And I remember, uh, I don't know if my father remembers it, but he took me aside and he's and he must have remembered his his uncles, uh, you know, the, those members of his family that had served in war. And he sort of took me aside and said, are you sure this is what you want to do? Like, you know, people are going to shoot at you and, and stuff like that. And I'm like, what are you talking about, dad? I'm just going to Townsville. <laughs> as a vehicle mechanic. <laughs> well, yeah, initially that's what I was, yeah. I was enlisting for. But, um, and even though I went into recruiting – did all that mechanical aptitude testing yep. and it sort of rolled through for a couple of months. It was in recruiting that I watched the other videos mm. and uh, and I was like, why am I going to fix motors and tanks and, and Land Rovers? Like, I want to fly a helicopter. And so I said that to the recruiter. I said, oh, you know, pay this motor mechanics piece off. I want to fly helicopters. And he just the I think he was an infantry sergeant, just sort of laughed at me and went, mate, <laughs> you need to go back to uni and physics and, like, you're not going to be a helicopter pilot. <laughs> and I said, well, what about this other one, the infantryman with the guns and stuff? And he goes, yeah, you can do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I changed over while I was at recruiting. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, so while you going through the recruiting process? Well, yeah. I was in yep. the, um, the recruiting officer. I was back in his office for the congratulations interview. Um, you're off to Bonagilla. You've – You've passed, you've been selected, your enlistment date is here, you're on the bus. And I sort of just said to him in his office, oh, mate, look, I've changed my mind. I want to be an infantryman and shoot guns and run around the bush. And he's like, I remember him like losing his shit and getting upset with me. <laughs> Kicked me out of his office. Like yeah. as, a, as a civvy, you know, and a, and a 17-year-old, I was a bit taken back. And But he sent me back downstairs to see the recruiting sergeant again and 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 I just literally sort of started to – change over. I was, I think I was still in year, uh, 11. Um, and the recruiting sergeant goes, Oh, well, we're only taking ready reserves. Do you want to be a ready reserve? And I said, no, um, it was ready reserve was that scheme where you just did 
12 months and then mm. changed over to the reserves. And I was like, no, I want to be a regular army person. And so he said, well, go away. I'll give you a call. It'll be about six months, but come back then. We'll be taking reg infantrymen again. And so I did that. Went and I was still going through year 12, but I was like wagging school and digging trenches for plumbers and yeah. um, going to school a bit, wrote my car off you know, after fixing it up in the automotive sort of workshop in, in college and did a bit of random stuff for 12 months and then um, just sort of got out a bit of an early out in college. Um, they sort of went, well, you've done enough to get your year 12 certificate off your go a bit early. And I just like late in the year, I went off to Kapuka about October, I think. Oh, did you? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, right. So you head down to Kapuka, mate. How was that, uh, that transition? You're only young too, so yeah, going into Kapuka. Well, and the other thing that I did in that mid-year 11 to year 12 when the recruiting sergeant said, well, go away and I'll give you a call to, to join the regs, he said, I recommend you join the reserves. And so that's what I did. I think I did about eight months in the Army Reserves. Um, so I'd done the Army Reserve recruit course and IT oh, gotcha. course, which were only like a couple of weeks. That's not a Kapuka, is it? No, um, which was only a couple of weeks long. So I did like six months in the reserves, which maybe gave me more bad habits and, yeah. and set me up. But I wasn't shocked when I got to Kapuka and people were shouting at me. It was a little bit of a shock, I suppose. Gotcha. It was like, this is a bit more extreme than I thought, but I had a bit of an idea. How did you go though, like? getting to Kapuka and then knowing that you were a chalk previously? Did you cop it a bit? Oh yeah, there was a um, couple of hardcore infantrymen. I remember there was a guy from Three Arrow. There was an ex sniper from Three Arrow, uh, and there was a couple of other blokes. They gave they I probably pulled the piss out of you more than anything. It yeah. wasn't really too serious. You got yeah. a bit of stick, you know. Um, you weren't patrolling right or something like that, and it's you're only doing it all to Kapuka standards anyway. Yeah, um, but I remember, you know getting made fun of and there was a few other blokes in the platoon. I think there was about four or five of us from the reserve unit in Tassie that I was in. My whole platoon at Kapuka were all from Tassie. Yeah. Um, and we got there. Yeah. But, yeah, pulled the piss out of us a bit, I think, for doing dumb stuff that Chocos do. Um, and probably the difference, I suppose, in the 80s and early 90s is, um, you know, if you spent some time in reserves, you might have some good skills from doing a kangaroo exercise or something like that. But I'd been in the reserves for six months, like, I, yeah, it probably did give me more bad habits than it actually yeah. gave me skill. But it sort of just – it did teach me enough to um, take surprise out of – I knew that they were going to shout at me at Kapuka when I got off the bus. Yeah, I just didn't realise I was going to throw my bed out of the two-storey window <laughs> when I hadn't made it properly or something like that. Yeah, they were probably a bit more extreme than we, we would have thought, but – Do you remember your hallway? Your oh, number? yeah, absolutely. What is it? Oh, 15, hallway, hallway 15, hallway, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's That's just 30, the, yeah, thirty years ago, isn't it? Yeah, it's crazy. Rats, isn't it? of, rats of the Brook platoon, I was, and oh, so was I remember them getting in. I don't know how many were like four guys that had served in North Africa. They were actual rats of the Brook, oh, and they, they came in and told did us you? some stories, did and they? they did a bit of history. That's of fucking cool. Platoon history, and that was yeah, really good. I suppose that was even looking back now, one of those first points mm. in my life where subconsciously I, just, I didn't realize it even for a long time, but started to understand the importance of storytelling. I suppose. 100%, mate. Yeah. 100%. Mm. Now, how long was Kapuka? How was Three long? months. So it was three months. Yeah, it went from um, whenever it was, October, up till December. And so we um, got off the bus, got on the bus in Kapuka, drove to Singleton and got off the bus, but then had to wait two weeks uh, for no other reason than all the instructor staff had gone on Christmas leave. And so we um, just spent a couple of weeks at Singo doing rear details and PT, and I think mm. we fought some bushfires as well in the oh, yeah. in the Blue Mountains. Yeah. Um, 
and then waited for the platoon to start at the end of mid mid to end of January. How were your parents? Obviously, you were going to be a vehicle mechanic, <laughs> and then uh, hey, mum, I'm uh, I'm a grunt. Yeah, I, I don't. We never talked about it. Yeah. They came to just, to them. I'd just gone to recruit training, so I don't think they would have even realised that the motor mechanics went to a different training establishment. Yeah. They oh, just yeah. turned up to Kapuka to the march out and went. Oh, congratulations, son! Like you've this is a big. It looks like a big deal. You've yeah. done a good job and got through your recruit training. Um, and as a kid, you just yeah, thanks. See ya. Thanks for coming. I'm yeah. off. Yeah, that's off, it. Yeah, off to sing, eh? So you get to sing, eh? As you said, mate, a couple of weeks uh, sitting back, obviously Christmas period. How long's uh, sing, eh, back then? Yeah, three months. Three, three months. months what again. year are we talking? 90, uh, the start of 94. So February, March, April, 94. Yeah, gotcha. Um, we were in, I was in uh, one hour. I, my group, my cohort, I suppose, coming out of Singo, we were the first reg soldiers, as I was saying that weren't ready reserves, so that we weren't the guys that went to the 8-9 or whatever, so back to 1 and 2 RR. Uh, and I got there because I was the new guy. We were the very first blokes to arrive after they'd got back from Somalia in 93. And so you're the new guy. off. You're going to be the cataphlect party on Anzac Day uh, around the rock. So that was that was our job. Yeah, so I did get there by Anzac Day. I do remember that because I was starching up at Polly's and I was the only guy without a active service medal. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Just back to Singo, man, how did you find that uh, transition from basic soldiering through to you know, specific infantry training? Yeah, I think now looking back on it, I think they were both really hard work. That's sort of my memory. But I enjoyed Singo because I didn't have to polish my boots or I didn't have to do this stuff that I wasn't really – into like I knew I had to do it to get out of Singo and uh, to get out of Kapuka, but I just wasn't into it. And when I got to Singo and they were like, "You need to keep your gear clean because it needs to work function under pressure," I was like, oh, "Yeah, I get that." Um, so clean your rifle and and now we're going to go do a pack march and now we're going to learn how to ambush and this is we're going to learn how to shoot a machine gun and so that stuff I just really enjoyed it. Um, so Singo was great fun. I saw heaps of purpose in it. Uh, and I enjoyed it. It was, you know, it was hard work. You're still, mm. you're doing a 15 clicker and it was hard work because you'd mm. never done yeah. one before type yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah, right. And you said your whole platoon was going all, uh, up to Townsville, one and two? Uh, no, they didn't. We had, um, I had a few guys go to three hour. Oh, did you? Yeah. Um, I think of their names now. Thane was one of them and a few others. Um, but we had uh, a couple go to five, seven, I think, and- might have only been one or two to go to two hour. Did you get a selection or was it just a stabbing? We did get a selection and I just thought I'd want to go to Townsville. We had a, I had a section commander doing the training as well that had come back from Somalia and been posted pretty much straight away at the end of the year. Uh, and so I think we might have been his first platoon as an, he was in, as his instructor posting. And, uh, and we, I just, this guy was super knowledgeable. Like he could always relate what we were learning to something that he'd done operationally and so it was probably one of the reasons why I was like, I want to go to to one hour, which I think served me well, you know, the next few years because everyone in one hour is like that. They all had stories about um, when they were on operations and, um, you know, the skirmishes that they'd got into and the, fight, gun, the fights they'd had um, over there in Somalia and so they a lot of their teaching, you know, even the senior digger to the to the Jube, to the new guy, there was a lot of reason behind it. So, mm. yeah, I, I wanted to go to one hour. Um, 
and was fortunate enough to get to go there, I think. Yeah, yeah. Mate, it's funny, like obviously we spoke offline earlier today about the mentality. You know, you're talking about the mentality of going to go fight wars and that's what you wanted to do. You shoot some guns, fight some bad people. That's yeah. That's I, I probably wasn't so much like that either. Not for any other reason than I don't think I ever thought of it. Like I never had um, – and lots of guys do. I mean, even – Eventually, when I got to the SAS, I know guys that joined the army to go and do selection and go to the SAS. I was never really like that. I was kind of more just keen for the, the adventure. What the adventure? <laughs> I, I just I never had this desire to go on operations. I think, and the main reason was I just never thought about it. Um, I was just as happy to go to Tully because yeah. that was cool. Yeah, um, in the jungle and and learn stuff. Yeah, and you're only eighteen, nineteen. Yeah, yeah. I we. Um, might have been just 19, yeah. you know, by the time I got to Wanara and I did a trip to America. Um, we went to Hawaii and uh, I couldn't even drink yet, wasn't 21. Uh, I think I had my 21st birthday while we were there. We did like a three-month trip, so we were there for a little while. Um, but, yeah, still young, naive, just absorbing. Yeah. So you get to Wanara. What year are we talking, sorry, is this? Start of 94. So the start of 94. Uh, next couple of years in battalion life, mate, again – Quiet time for the battalion, quiet time for the regiment, quiet time yep. for the army, the defence force. Yeah, the four years I was there, except for that um, yeah. you know, three-month trip to to uh, Hawaii. Yeah, we trained, trained in the you know trained at high range, trained high in range. the jungle, um, got good at our basic skills. I did uh, my first year. I was they gave me the number two minimi because we carried the two minimis in a section. So here, young fella, you're carrying the number two minimi in the rifle group. Did that for twelve months. Uh, my second year, the section commander went, you seem like you'll be a reasonable scout. So I changed over to be the scout in the section. Uh, and then my third year, I did the recon course uh, at the end of the second year and went to recon platoon for the third year, uh, where I served with uh, Ant, actually, that you had on your yep. podcast. Yep. And then uh, I went to snipers the year after that. So while I was in uh, Charlie Company, in my second year, I did the sniper pre-selection and the recon course. And so I got selected, went to recon, did 12 months there. And then at the end of that day, I think they must have had a shortage of guys that had done the pre-selection. So I got a Guernsey to go to snipers and be a number two over there for 12 months. And that was the end of that year was when I did selection. In regard to this, you know, the Special Forces SASR, mate, did you have any run-ins with the CATs? You know, what, where, where, is, where does this implant into your mind of – Wanting to have Yeah, a, have a I, I did have a couple of implants. I did um, – it might have been a K-95, I think. We saw an SAS patrol go past in their – Oh, yeah. In their cars, in their yep. long-range patrol vehicles. I didn't really think much of it. It was like, oh, that's pretty cool. Um, who are those blokes? Like, I had to ask someone and they're like, oh, that's that's the SAS. And I was like, oh, right, yeah. Um, so didn't think much of it. But I think where the seed got planted was all the other blokes. Because I did, was in that recon mm. sniper sort of stream um, – Everyone, or not everyone, but, you know, I reckon 90% of blokes that went into that stream at some stage would give selection a go. Some would get in, get through and stay in Perth and you'd never see him again and it was always a bit, wonder whatever happened to that guy. That was, that's a bit mysterious. Um, and then some guys would come back and tell you epic stories about, you know, got halfway th- through, you know, got to week three of selection and just, you know, did an ankle or whatever. Um it was like epic stories. And, they, and the guys that actually went and came back to me were phenomenal soldiers. Like they were excellent soldiers. They were super fit, good at their job in the field. And so I was like, I 
sort of thought, well, I don't even know if I'm up to this, but if I do the training, um, I'll just give it a bash like everyone else out of curiosity more than anything, just to go and give it a go myself with um, no real mad desire to be in the special forces or or anything like that. Um, Obviously, I wanted to pass it. I wanted to get to the end. I wanted to do the best job I could, but um, it was was more just like that would be a cool experience. I wonder what happens over there. I'll go see for myself, yeah. Yeah, well, you found out. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So you do selection, mate. What year, again, mate, just going back to years, what year? 97. So this is 97, you do selection. Mate, run us through this process. So you jump on a plane, head out to uh, Western Australia. Yeah, back back then um, you did all – you didn't do barrier testing or anything like that. You They sent – you applied – you did uh, some psych testing in your, back at your parent unit. So you go down the psych cell in Townsville and get interviewed by a psych and um, you might have done some aptitude testing, I think. You might have had to get signed off by a PDI, I can't remember. Um, but then they would go, yeah, you're on the course. Here's your training program to get you ready. And they actually mailed you out through the army, a little booklet. And it had, you know, Morse code in it and, and all this theory but it also had a, a about a six week, I think, training program, and I was pretty fit anyway. I mean, I I'd be at the back of the platoon, but I could keep up with recon platoon type thing, and yeah. and so I was pretty fit, and um, and it was just like, well, I'm pretty, not too bad at pack marching. I'm shit at swimming. I'll focus on the swimming a bit more, and so I just did the training program, uh, and and went over for selection. I, I do recall. I think there was a bit over a thousand, maybe about twelve hundred. They told us initially applied, um, and starting on my course, there was a bit less than one hundred and fifty. I'm going to say maybe there was like one hundred and thirty, or something like that. Starters on the course, and uh, and because there was a heap from Townsville, they literally landed a, a herc um, oh, at yeah, Garbutt, right. and all the guys that were on selection got on the herc, and we flew, might have flown from Townsville to somewhere else, or maybe Darwin. And a bunch of guys, more guys got on the Herc and then we flew down and the Herc touched down at, uh, in Perth at the airbase and the ramp went down and the DS were pretty much standing there waiting for us. They had a few other candidates that had, maybe they were from Perth or they were from Adelaide that had gotten there some other means and they were sitting in the terminal in a hangar at the, at the airport that the Herc had basically backed up to, but like, you know, there's... 60 or 80 guys, I don't know how many was on the plane, getting off the back of the Herc and uh, and it just started like from that moment. You know, I think I was doing 100 push-ups because my paperwork wasn't right. And still to this day I'm like, like right. they just gave me push-ups. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I don't know, maybe there was something wrong with it. But, you know, we got push-ups 10 minutes after getting off the plane. I remember in my head going, they, they actually really hurt. Like two weeks ago I could do 100 push-ups easy and I just did 100 and – that wasn't good. Like, I hope this is not a sign of things to come. <laughs> yeah. How long was that selection? Oh, it's about three weeks. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Yep. Um, she's a real roller coaster. I mean, I remember Kapuka and Singo being hard. Um, that's because I suppose I look back now on my career and selection and some of the things I did after it, actually physically, were really hard. Yeah. Like, um, I could pack much, short, stocky guy, and throw heaps of weight on my back. I sort of had no dramas with that. I'd done it in one hour, and I knew I was always going to probably be able to out out carry a uh, uh, a loggy or you yeah. know someone else that hadn't done it for a career. So I was fine. 
I, I was fine with that. When they stopped feeding us and when they uh, stopped letting us sleep, that was like when you really start to immerse yourself in that exhaustion. Yeah, it was epic. I've had obviously a bunch of SF guys on from Tucumano and SASR. Yep. <clears throat> you know, during this whole selection period, actually every single one of them has said there are times when I've been sitting there and I'm like, oh, I can't do this anymore. But then they go, I just did it. I just thought, fuck it. I'll just do it. Yeah. I'll do one more day. Yeah. I'll do one more day. And then the next day, I'll do another day. How many times were there times where you're sitting there just going, fuck, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> well, no. Like, honestly. Oh, yeah, um, right. I'm stubborn prick. Yeah. And so I was never going to quit. Yeah. Um, which was probably the one, if I had only gone with one trait, was that. That was it. Yeah. Because I didn't have the desire to pass. I just had the desire not to quit. And so I was in my head pretty much the whole time as like, I will fall over. I will pass out. You can send me home. And it's your unit. Like you're. You're the custodians of it. If you don't think I should be there, I I thought this at the time. If you don't think I should be there, you can tell me to go, but I'm not quitting. Um, and I just kept carrying the pack. I mean, there were moments that I suppose were almost unbearable. I remember one um, one occasion with my mate who I'd um, known in one hour and we'd done a bit of training together beforehand and it was to, towards the end of the course. We were still allowed to get a little bit of sleep but it was like two hours a night mm. and it certainly wasn't enough for the workload that we were enduring. Um, and we had to run a picket on our little two hours. So you, you're pulling a, you know, a 30 minute picket or something like that. And I remember on one of those pickets towards the end of the course and I just couldn't stay awake and I, I knew it cause I was an infantryman and I know what it's, I know what it's like to be tired. And, and I woke my mate up next to me who had been doing, you know, as much as me and mm. maybe more, uh, and said, mate, hook me up. Like, I've got 15 minutes to go and I can't stay awake. And he goes, I've got you. Go to, go to sleep. So I still think, like, I, I love those stories of teamwork that still come out even on something like a special forces selection. Yeah. When the DS are just looking at you and how you perform and, it, and it's sort of individual at the end of the day. Like, if someone can't keep up, you've got to cut them away. Um, but then there's still those moments of, you know, Mateship. Potentially some of the yeah. most powerful teamwork yeah. that you can that you can see. Yeah. I, I, and I helped him out a couple of days later. We were doing some other activity and we'd gotten wet. We had to um, – like a river crossing or something. Uh, and we got out and the DS like, right, let's go, next activity. And we just started stomping down the road. And we – my mate was in the locker. He's like, "We've I can't go on. Like I need a break. I'm going to pass out. And I was this, like the section commander of the little team and I said, oh, fuck, like I don't want to stick my head up. I don't want to stop being the grey man. I, I've got you. So I went to the DS and said, mate, we need to stop. We've got to change our socks. Um, we've got to put our dry socks on, otherwise we're going to lose the section. And the DS is like, all right, yeah, you can do that. You've got oh. 10 minutes type thing. And so I, I kind of think, yeah, I r- repaid him. <laughs> yeah. yeah repaid him the favour that he, he did break, for me yeah. a couple of days earlier. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, and probably more than the break, I was a bit concerned. Like, yeah, the last thing I want to be doing is be the guy that says, "Hey, we need to stop. We need a break." Yes, yeah. you don't tell those guys you need a yeah, break. No, you yeah. just keep going, <laughs> <laughs> mate. That they're good stories, though, as mm. you said, mate. When it comes to mateship and working as a team, especially that's that's the army. 
yeah. army way, uh, army just, way of living, and just keep going. Like you got to, you got to, on those courses, um, um, SF, uh, which was like the recon course. I mean, some of the traits I got from the recon course certainly wasn't easy, and you just kept going. Whether it was a smashing mm. PT session or, um, you, I just wasn't going to quit. So I don't really have that. I don't have that memory of that time. And DSing years later, uh, I saw, saw heaps of it. Yeah, uh, and I used to love to run these little experiments in my own head when I was the DS on selection and someone would come up to me to quit and they're handing over their little uh, withdraw it own request form and they've signed it and everything. And, and I'm like, mate, just put that back in your pocket for a minute, you know. Um, I just got a question for you. How long have you wanted to do this course for? And the answer was always, oh, two years, three years. How long have you been training for? Oh, 12 months. Okay, so why are you quitting today? And it'd be like, oh, my wife doesn't, wouldn't want me to be here. It's like you've decided that on, at, you know, week one <laughs> on day seven. Yeah. Like, mate, that's a, something you should have decided before now. Or you know what? Decide it in two weeks' time once you finish the election. So it always um, – I found it surprising – you know, just the mind games that people played with themselves yeah. um, to to not get to give themselves an out. Mm. Yeah, far out. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely talk about that uh, DS side of things. It is interesting, especially yeah. for you to see never, both sides. Yeah, I didn't run a – I was never in charge of running a selection. Mm. I wasn't posted to the to the cell that does yep. that. Yep. But quite often the just unit will just go, hey, we need, yep. we need people. We need sergeants. We need senior corporals come down. Mm. And, and help us out. Yeah, and did lots where you're just sitting on a nav checkpoint yeah. or something like that. Yeah. But did a few where you're, you're helping select guys. Yeah, right. Now, just back to the selection, mate. You said you started off with about 130-ish, 160-ish yeah. or something like that. Uh, how many at the end? Uh, I think there was about 30 of us finished and maybe two or three didn't get selected. Oh, shit. Um, so I, starting my Rio cycle where we do all our courses to get operational and go to – a squadron. I think there was about 27 of us. Yeah, right. So you start that reinforcement cycle, mate, and how long is this? Because uh, it chops and changes over yeah, the years. Yeah, mine was about 12 months. Yeah. Maybe a tiny bit over. Um, or that we did the 12 months, went to the squadron, but then there was still a few courses that we would come back from the squadron to do over time, specialist courses, um, which now they've moved on to – or they had moved on to the Rio cycle, you know, last I knew, which was a few years ago. Um, but, yeah – so about 12 months. I think it crept up to like 18 months there at one point. Yeah, yeah. And, and just for the listeners that don't know, what is the reinforcement cycle? You basically just do all those courses that um, – that because they could be getting someone from anywhere in the military. You know, around my era, there was clearance divers. There was a sub – I remember there was a submariner, an officer that went through. There was um, there was a RAFI. So you'd get – and from the Army, could be anywhere, mm-hmm. you know could have a, a cook or a bandy or, or so they start right at the basics and they teach you how to patrol. Uh, you'll be selected as a medic or a SIG. You'll, they'll select a insertion skill for you. That's where um, sort of that water, air, land sort of piece comes in. And then any military course that you could think that a special forces good guy would do, you would do it. We would do um, non-lethal uh, equipment like ASP and unarmed combat and um, we do demolitions, did roping and airborne roping and did parachuting. 
I specialised as a mobility operator, but you still did some small boat stuff. I uh, specialised as a medic, and yeah, just jam packed. Finish one course, finish one course on a Friday, Straight and start legs. another one on the Monday. Yeah, yeah. Was, was there any courses that you struggled with? Um, I did not in that very first Rio year, but very shortly after, I did some Indonesian. I was never a gun at languages. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think I sort of hid on the ones that you would think, oh, yeah, you know, like I didn't star. I did okay on a couple. Um, I'd ridden dirt bike. I did a motorbike course. I'd yeah. ridden dirt bikes yeah. as a kid, and so I wasn't the best rider on the on the course. But you know, I was in the top four or five or so, and. So a lot of my courses were sort of like that. I enjoy. I was a sniper in the battalion, so I'd done some extra shooting. So when it came to CGB, there was kind of either you passed the pistol shooting or you were failing. There was not really anyone mm. excelling. I mean, I passed the pistol shooting pretty early on. Um, and so, yeah, yeah I, yeah, I suppose that's probably a bit more generic. You don't excel at anything. Yeah. You either pass or you're still yet to pass. Yeah. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. So you finished your 12-month uh, reinforcement cycle, mate. At the end of it. Your badge, get your sandy beret. Yep. How's that? How's that feeling, mate? That's you know that's accomplishment. Yeah, it's a you know even for someone like me that yeah at the start no real I'll just give selection yeah. a go because I'm interested to see what it's like. Um, by the end of it, you've dedicated two years of your life to this mm. thing, uh, and it's hard. It's hard work every day of that two years. So once you know a, you know one of those senior sergeants that you've now is an absolute guru, um, teaching you all this stuff over so long, you know, come up and hand you your beret, it's like it's a pretty big moment. Um, you, know, you, you know, we never took photos back in the day, but you'd take the time to get mm. together with your mates and get a photo of it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, just quickly back to your, I guess, back to your parents, mate, finally. Hey, hey guys, uh, I'm in the SAS now. Oh. Not a vehicle mechanic anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mate, I don't, I don't think they had any idea. Oh, you've been posted to Perth. That's oh, lovely. Yeah, yeah. They still, okay. still don't know. Yeah. Uh, I think that was where mum and dad's uh, under, you know, knowledge of the military came to a halt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. So uh, I've just what's... been posted from Townsville. I've done four years yeah. in Townsville and now I've been, been posted, posted to Perth. Yeah. <laughs> mate, uh, in regards to uh, obviously getting posting, what squadron did you go to? Two squadron. Two yeah. squadron, yeah. Marched straight into two squadron. Um, there wasn't many of us off my Rio because two squadron was – we used to run in a, a three-year cycle and two squadron was um, going on team for the Olympics. So they certainly weren't starting with more um, exercise-driven um, training programs and things like that. But I was sniper qualified in the battalion. And so they went, well, that's good. We need some snipers in two squadron. We'll send him to do – his additional courses that he needs to do to work with us and we'll send him to the sniper troop in two squad. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, right. And so, so again, just back to the year, the dates, what, when did you get badged? Um, well, it was the end of 98. Yeah, right. So I think it was like December-ish. Yep. They pretty much went, um, go down and see your SSM and then you go on on Christmas leave and when you start back in January – Yep. You'll be in two squadron. Yeah, right. So obviously 2000 Olympic comes up. Um, obviously SASR had quite a big role in the black role side of things. Yeah, I think the whole of defence had a lot of Oh, yeah, definitely, people definitely, there, yeah. But yeah we, on the counter-terrorism I suppose we had an things, important yeah. part of what defence yep. supplied, yeah. Yeah, it was not, it was a big deal. Um, I think it's where I started to grasp the importance of that operational mindset because um, 
in one hour, I'd done four years of training. I was always training for war. You know, I was getting good at my bush skills for, you know, in case I had to go overseas in recon platoon. Whereas we went to the range as soon as I got to, uh, to two squadron because we were going to the Olympics and we had this operational thing to do in 12 months time. Uh, we did a lot of preparational activity with this specific end state. It wasn't like training to get good at our job. It was training to get good at this thing, which is our job. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, No, it does. It does. Obviously, the role for the SASR were, was the counterterrorism side. Yeah, we were the hostage rescue pretty much. And how long was the Olympics for? How long were we talking? Oh, like a month. A, a month? little bit longer because we yeah. did they do the Olympics and the Paralympics one oh, after the other. Well, and, straight after, yeah. Um, and yeah, but maybe for that month, a bit over, um, we spent a year training for it. Training for it. And then we spent months in, you know, I can't remember now, maybe three months in Sydney. Um, up until the Olympics, we were going to and from Perth and Sydney and exercises and training uh, on that black roll. But then once the, well, maybe two months before the Olympics, we went to Sydney and based out of there. Our helicopters came down because they weren't based there at that time. Yep. They were based in Townsville. So the helicopters came down and we stepped the training up. We were going to the actual sporting venues and, and doing surveys on them and running exercises at them and things like that. Now, this is pre-2001, so, you know, the world has experienced somewhat uh, terrorism events, you know, throughout the world here and there, not to the extent of what happened in 9-11. What were the current threat, you know, images back then in the year 2000 for the Olympics? I, I think globally there was a lot of threat. Um, mm. We used to get those, you know, standard into updates that you'd get, you know, we'd look at a different terrorist group each week and what are they What are they up to? What are they doing? Um, I don't think fortunate's the right word, but um, I think Australia as a place is um, well positioned, you know, where we are in the world as an island. So it's easier to police above me um, for the, you know, those state and federal agencies to keep us safer uh, but then on top of that, it's was probably almost seen as a um, a bit of a safe haven type thing. So I think all, there was a lot of contributing factors to we weren't needed at the end of the day. Oh. Yeah, we did we did a lot of preparatory you know work to be ready. Uh, should we be needed? I did a um, lot of liaison with uh, police and, yep, and different course, people, yep. which was awesome. But um, as a squadron to come together to, you know, save, you know, there wasn't a big hostage event. So yeah. we weren't needed. Yeah. It, actually, it's funny because you picked up that book before from Fassie, Brett mm. Pinnell. Yep. He was there as TOU. So I'm sure you would have oh, worked yep. alongside with yep. uh, the, the the state police, yep. obviously, as well. How did you find that working with those guys? Um, not really working. I, I didn't. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure about anyone else, but not really working alongside them, but uh, every exercise we would do and and sometimes those guys were still, because they were obviously gearing up mm. for this huge international event, we would go and see what they were doing. They'd come and see what we were doing. If we were running an exercise, they'd have their part to play in it. Like all the exercises were on steroids to the point where um, the police were there. The police were trying to contain whatever the exercise scenario was and if they couldn't, they were then asking for that, you know, 
aid to the civil power through the government and it was like every exercise was exercising everything. Mm. We did uh, we did ac- activities, you know, finish up, shoot paint, kill some terrorists and then we're off to court to like go through the process oh, no way. Yeah, of, right. um, yep. of finishing out the exercise. So it was uh, – we were like interacting with police a fair bit in that regard. Was there a bit of peacocking though, obviously – where SASR? No, nah, not really. Um, I'm sure, there would. Be I think a most bit. of the time they didn't get paid overtime, so they were, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they were pretty keen to knock off. So yeah. they were more, you know, from that exercise perspective, yeah. they were like hand over to hand over to defence. It's just yeah. an exercise, That's, and yeah. they're operational yeah. too. So they, yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. I think probably some of their exercises got canned because they had live jobs to go. Live, to do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, especially the TOU, mate. Yeah, yeah. far out. Now uh, you do the Olympics. This is kind of your first exposure to an operation per se. Yeah, back out uh, west, mate, Timor kicks off. Yeah, well, kicked off while we're at the Olympics. Yeah. That was a bit of a joke at the time um, because when Two Squadron got the job to go to the Olympics and the big CT piece, uh, we were sticking it up the other squadrons, I suppose, look at us go. Uh, but then once we got into it, we were stuck there. And so when the other job, big jobs, when They're guys would head off to yep. Timor and places like that, they were like, yeah, yeah, you guys just hang out in Sydney. We'll let you know if we need you. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a bit of banter going on there. Um, but it was well and truly underway. I uh, finished the Olympics and did some other training and a couple of other jobs, small things, and then went on Christmas leave again. Like I was pretty fortunate up to 2001, I think, <laughs> to mm, get my yeah, Christmas leaves. Yeah. Uh, and came back and went to Timor at the start of 2001. Yeah, right. So straight over to Timor, mate. What is the role for the SSR in East Timor back then? Uh, all the other roles, everything that yeah. no one else was doing. Yeah. Um, Timor was kind of phenomenal because we did a lot of lot of different jobs. Um, so we never got bored in the one thing. There was a bit of um, classic old school sort of field reconnaissance and I did um, a bit of VIP protection and I, because I was a medic, I'd go out and do some humanitarian aid patrols where we'd run clinics in villages and um, so it was, you know, a bit of overt, a bit of covert, a bit of everything. Um, was really good. Anything happen over there while you are over there? Uh, it was sort of later in the piece. I think it had been ongoing for over just over a year. Um, we chased some militia back across the border one day when I was on QRF. We flew down to the border and roped in onto a, another unit that had had a contact. Um, but, you know, we didn't see the enemy. Uh, not, I mean, it was, again, it was a step up from the operational space where we got ready for that Sydney. Like we had a training role to get ready for this operation. Whereas Timor, I was on operations. Mm. Like we were chasing this is real deal. bad guys yeah. around. So I've got this theme in my career where things kept stepping up as I went along. I was yeah. quite fortunate. I was never dumped in the deep end at the start. Um, but oh, yeah, no, yeah, there wasn't, I didn't get shot at or blown up in Timor, so that was a good thing. Yeah, yeah most definitely. <laughs> yeah, most we, um, some of the probably most moving stuff, some of, some of those, you know, decisive moments for me in Timor was, yeah, roping out of a helicopter onto a contact site and tracking enemy um, or what we saw as enemy back to the border type thing, um, but probably more so was the interaction with the locals mm. that we had a lot different of. culture. Yeah, different culture and we'd s- stay in villages and have feeds and, um, we built a road on one occasion. We were running medical clinics through this remote area and uh, and we'd sit down and have a yarn at the locals and we'd like, you know, if 
the UN can because it was UN run by then. The UN can help you with anything. What would you? What would it be? And they're like, we need this road fixed. And so we went back and tried to organise some engineers, and no engineers would come. So we just got some rovers and some shovels and went back out there. And the locals went, "This is awesome. We'll give you a hand." And so, like, we did this patrol over about a week. At one point, I think we had like a hundred, hundred and fifty locals out yeah, right. digging the road with us, and we built a road oh, um, by hand that ran for about fifteen k's or something. So, like, those were the the, the awesome things for me. Yeah, in Timor. like a yeah. community engagement type thing. Yeah. Yeah. Hearts and minds. As Hearts they say. and minds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, I'm sure there's actually another term I can't think. It's, it's escaped me, but that real you know, engagement with the locals, I yeah. suppose. Mm. Yeah. Now, during your uh, Timor deployment, September 11, 2001. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was, it wasn't during my deployment, but I was there. I was um, packing my bags. It was oh, yeah. It was so I flew back to Australia on September 12. Oh, shit. Um, and so I was in my tent, we were sleeping in our little tents in our, at our base and someone come to grab me and said, Hey, you should come and watch the news. Like there's this bloody epic shit going down in the States. Looks serious. And I was literally like, mate, I'm busy. I've got to clean my stuff and pack my bags. I'll check it out tomorrow. Like I've got to be in the Rover to go back to Dilly at like four o'clock in the morning. Don't have time. Uh, and it wasn't until I woke up in four, you know, four o'clock in the morning and I just grab a brew and turn on the TV. I was like, Holy shit. And I suppose by that stage it was now six or eight hours later. Oh, so everything's so it had collapsed. It developed enough yeah. that yeah, the, the, it was no longer a plane had flown into a building. There's now buildings had collapsed and and Pentagon's and been hit and people, Pennsylvania. Yeah, yep. and it, the info was now on the news, uh, and so that was how I flew back to Australia. So you get back to Australia, mate. Obviously, out the west coast. What's reverbing through the through the unit? Guys have already gone. Have yeah, they? To get ready. I'm pretty sure there was mates of they mine fly, that fly I, to Kuwait I didn't somewhere. see. Yeah. Yep. Well, not even to Kuwait, but they'd gotten their gear ready and they'd gone off to yep. whatever other raft base there yeah. was for them to go and wait at. Oh, um, shit. But they – yeah, I'm pretty sure um, some of my close mates uh, that were in the squadron that went, I didn't get to see them before they went. So it was a big deal, yeah. Yeah, because I think what, the first US or CIA were in October, I'm pretty sure. Literally, mm. I might couple, be wrong. Two but weeks I'm, after, I think CIA was straight because I've had one guy on. He was yeah, a yeah, rescueman. He yep. picked up the first uh, KIA. Yeah, right. CIA guy. Yeah, yep. yeah. Uh, they, they had guys over there pretty quick, and and our, I, I'm not sure the exact date, but our yeah. squadron wasn't far behind them. Yeah. yeah, and you're you're still in two squadron. Yeah, so we we weren't the first squadron to go. Um, in actual fact, we were the third. We were the last one to go in. Um, yeah, in two thousand and. Two, so guys went whenever it was, the end of 2001. So you're, so again, you're back to Australia. You're just straight into training, just straight into prepping. Yeah, we've just come back from six months in Timor. So um, um, like rounding out my Timor trip, it was a little bit longer than most because uh, most guys did, you know, four or five months maybe, but the elections in Timor, their first elections were running at towards the end of my trip. So I just stayed on to give some continuity through that hmm. election process and so i just done six months overseas i um they're gonna give they gave me some leave when i yep. got back so i can't remember i had three or four weeks off or something like that yeah just one thing i want to touch on mate obviously how was the defense force or even more special forces sasr how were they preparing for the war in afghanistan you know, something we've never really done but you know since the world war days in those parts of the world well the those first guys i just don't suppose really 
prepared. Just, it they, was just a – They were in there probably make, halfway through their training yep. year and just went, oh, we're, we're going to um, over here now and, and off they jumped in their team. I mean, they're all well-trained guys and that's yeah. what yeah, we've of got course, them yeah. for. But yep. I think when we came back the next year, they were sort of going, hey, this is not going to be a four-week thing. We're going to rotate the squadrons through to have continuity – over the next year or so, however long we're there. Um, and so you guys will need – we don't know when you're going or if you're going, but we think you will be going. You need to get ready as though you do go. And here's some of the snippets of information coming back from the jobs the guys are doing. So my squadron out of all of them would have had a bit more opportunity to, to prepare to prepare and train for the job that we were going to go and do. I It's a while ago now. I do recall um, – them allocating teams. Yep. Hey, these are the teams. If we go, these are the teams we'll be in. We tried to keep a bit of continuity back then, but we'd started to, I think, lose it to what the regiment had probably in the 80s and 90s where they'd go into a team and they'd stay there for three years. Like after the Olympics and Timor and people were sort of bouncing in and out of sort of more operational stuff than than a, a three-yearly cycle, uh, by that 2002 stage, it was like, hey, it was this is going to be great because we get to be in the same team for 12 months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Now, I'm just trying to figure out, you know, how even that first rotation, how they prepared, you know. They've gone from Timor maybe carrying six magazines through to loading out an LRP, LRPV with fucking everything. Yeah, well, we, we did. We put a lot of gear on them. Yeah. Um, we – I was a mobility guy, so I, yeah. The build-up build right, yeah. training would have been, "Hey, we're going bush in WA, um, and you guys do what you do. We'll get we'll get the mobility troop, troop. We'll get the mobility troop to run some training for the freefallers and, and landies, and uh, sorry, the freefallers and the wateries, because they're going to be operating out of cars too. And so, uh, a lot of them are super capable, mm. and and. Quite a number of them are, are even qualified, but let's get the mobility troop to run some heavy weapons training and we'll do some brake contacts off vehicles and things like that for the whole squadron. Yeah, so right. That, maybe that type of stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the SIGs would have been working on their SIG stuff. The med, yeah. medics would have gone down the ROP and done some build-up training with the with the actual core medics, you know, running some training for us, just brushing up on all those skills that we're going to need. Yeah, so you get over in 2002 for your first trip to Afghanistan. Yeah, I was about mid-year, I think, we got there, yeah. Yep, mid-year, and uh, where are you flying into? Is this uh, Bagram, everything was yep. based up at Bagram at this stage. Yeah, well, yeah. it was for us and the squadron before us. How's it feeling for you? It was um, like the, by the time I'd got there, like the first squadrons, you know, Anaconda and well-documented battles that they'd had mm. with Al-Qaeda – had all sort of petered down by mid-year 2002. Um, I was amazed to get there to see a war zone without a war occurring. Like in it, it was just finished. Um, so that was super, like, mind-blowing, I suppose, for still a pretty young guy. I'm 25 or 26 or however old I was. But the other thing which didn't sort of hit me until later years was how happy the Afghans were for us to be there. Like – Every house we drove past was inviting us in and uh, and you, it's not like Afghanistan's not like Australia where there's big deserts to hide in. Everywhere we drove around in our cars, um, you know, you were driving past villages and yep. things like that. And so the locals kind of, you know, usually knew where you were. It was pretty hard for you to hide from them. Um, but they were just pretty happy to see us. Like 
whether they were a warlord or whether they were an everyday person, mm-hmm. they'd invite us down to their house to have chai and have a yarn about how things were going and they were glad Al-Qaeda was kicked out. They, yeah. they were actually really optimistic for their future. So just back to that, you did you guys think that you missed – Missed the fight and missed the war. Oh, absolutely. That was it. So you get um, over there and you're like, fuck, oh, everything seems peachy. Again, for me, like Timor, like I, it's not like I was upset. Yeah. Um, it's like this was still the – it was a massive, big big deal. Like I just did a roll-on, roll-off. Our first patrol was load up the LRPVs. You guys are getting inserted here. Um, we actually flew from Kabul to Jalalabad, but Jalalabad had no um, coalition presence yet. I think there was an ODA team there of, you know, like 10, yeah. 10 guys for that whole city and nothing north or south of it. So you're going to fly into an insecure airfield, um, roll on, roll off with your cars. And so I'd probably done one or two back in Australia in training, um, not rolling off in an LRPV onto an unsecure airfield with one Green Beret to sort of wave to me as I got there. So it was pretty epic, yeah. Yeah, right. We drove off and, um, and that first patrol, we cruised the border to talk to locals, to search for the remnants of Al-Qaeda because there was still a little bit out there. Yeah. Um, asking people about the, Alaba- the Taliban and, and, and to, the, to the man, no, 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 no Taliban here, all gone, back to Pakistan. And so that, that, was, that was the drive, yeah. Um, there was always – we were always very vigilant. Like, um, of course. Getting ambushed was super possible. It was, it was, you probably go as far to say it was likely. Um, but I think we just – they were still now sitting back to see, you know, how it was going to play out. Yeah, right. It was just sort of that void between that they'd sort of been beaten 2001, early 2002, and now they were in their battle pause, which I don't know how long it lasted, till about 2005, I think. Yeah. From what I've read. Uh, 9-11 itself, obviously, the name Osama bin Laden was the he's – the, he's the prime target, mate. Where's that on – the list for the SASR is it just if you stumble across him? Then yeah, if you if yeah. you spot him, let us know. Like ask the locals if they've seen him, and so that's what we did. So, so that was part of it. Just like, hey, yeah, mate, was, we're looking for this dude. Was, here's all, him. Here's all the questions we want answered. Yeah. Go out into the field. Um, I was super um, well, interested. I I found it surprising when we got there, uh, and I and even though there'd been a couple of squadrons there before us, I think you know our hierarchy had to go searching the jobs for us to do, go see the Yanks. And the Yanks are like, oh, how many blokes you got? Like, what, you know, what can you really do? And and our Australian hierarchy were like, well, I've got an SAS squadron. Like, they're pretty capable humans. Here's what they're capable of. And I think the Americans were sort of, they're going to go out in the field for how long in their cars? I'd like to see this. And so, they like, the Americans probably, this is the story that I've heard, you know, second hand, you know, second or third hand, but there's an AO, go and patrol the border you know, down south of Jalalabad through Kaos. Like, it's the, it's the badlands. Go yeah. down there and send us back some some strategic intelligence. That would be great. And I, I honestly think the Americans were probably like, they're not going to go out there for a month. And he's <laughs> dead. We, well, we, I think 68 days or something was the first patrol we did. I mean, we got a, a race up every two weeks. Yeah. Uh, a Chinook could fly in, but we needed water and fuel. You said um, in Kaos, did you? Uh, we, Does that turn into like one of the – Hotspots down the track. Oh, Kaos was yeah, like it was yeah, like the yeah. well, even before to drop more nine eleven. That was they fired the missiles into Kaos from yeah the warships the Yanks had in yeah. wherever they were um, to hit those training camps pre invasion and and yeah, I mean there's 
that was the Badlands. Like, yeah. So it just like I we, wanna, we drove down the – just drove through it. Yeah, I don't want to get too much into TTPs, but how many LRPVs or how many cats are we talking cruising through? Like in, in this patrol. Oh, we drove around in patrols. Yeah. Yeah, so yep. two cars, six, seven guys. Well, we had six shooters, but we'd quite often have maybe eight guys. Yeah. And what's We didn't the, have JTACs at the time, so yep. we took American JTACs with us. What's the loadout? We're talking 50 cow, 58. We'd have a 50 cow, Mark 19, a um, couple of mag 58s, a couple of 84s. We got, I got javelin, jav, javelin trained. Yep. Um, back, that was, you know, talk about build-up training. That was like, holy shit, we need to get some guys javelin trained. Mark, go, you're doing that. And so, you know, that was just something they had to go do for two weeks and throw a javelin in the back of your car. Yeah, shit. We, yeah, we had plenty of guns and, you know, it's one of the other reasons I reckon that um, we did okay back then. Like people with an AK would think twice of, about taking you on. Gun truck, yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, obviously the, the language barrier. Uh, one of you, uh, you guys doing language courses? Is you struggle with language? No one? <laughs> Always to struggle yeah. with languages. No, we had Terps. We got yeah. a Terp. Oh, you had yeah. some local Terps. Yeah, yep. yeah, we got a local Terp. Yeah. Yeah. And um, again, that – school teacher from Jalalabad that was optimistic about his country's future. Yeah, I'll come and be your Terp. Um, so you always had to be a little bit careful, like the Terp's not vetted. Yeah. You're operating <laughs> with a guy that you only just met. Um, but they were great, good people. Yeah, and the blokes, you know, blokes that I was working with, we were trained to, to work with them, um, you know, how to operate with a local. Um, but it was phenomenal Terp. And, and even better – like I, I worked with some amazing Terps that came from the States, but to have that guy that had grown up in Afghanistan and had never left Afghanistan um, to then be explaining to you the customs and traditions and things like that, that was probably even after I worked there for so long in later years, still some of the best training on the country I got just in that first four months, I reckon. Well, you've pretty much become a local in a way. Just I, yeah, I spent a lot of immerse, time there. Yes, I mean, you immerse yourself with the villages. and Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And I'm sure some of those villages would be the first time they'd probably seen some white, white folk. Yep. We, one guy asked us if we were British because of the British redcoats. Um, he hadn't seen the Russians. Uh, and then other guys thought we were Russians. I mean, I wore a, um, a Pashtun hat driving. I was the, the scout on my patrol, so I'm driving. I think there's some photos in One there. of the cars yeah. and there's a photo that kicks around that I've shared in front of a cave system actually. Um I had a. I looked a bit Afghani. Like I have this really funny story. One day, the Terps sitting in the back of our car talking to the patrol commander, and I've pulled up at like a mountain pass because we're out in rural, rural areas, rural, remote, mountainous areas. And I had to wait for the jingle truck to come through the mountain pass so that we could go through once it was empty. Like it only fit one car at a time. And there's a local standing next to my car, standing next to the open cut LRVP LRPV driver's seat, and he starts talking to me like, you know, right in my face. And I turned to the Terp in the back of the car and I'm like, mate, can you tell me what he's, what this guy's saying? He's clearly talking to me. And the Terp sort of pricks his ear over the front of the car and has a bit of a listen. He goes, mate, he actually, he's telling, he's saying you're a bit rude for ignoring him. <laughs> like, well, tell him I don't know what he's saying. Like, I'm not, he's like, no, he doesn't believe you. He thinks you're an Afghan. And, oh, and no he way. wants to know yeah. why these Americans have got an Afghan driving their car. <laughs> no way. 
just because of the hat I'm wearing. I yeah, yeah. And yeah. we'd grown pretty big beards. And as you've seen in Afghanistan, there's plenty of these random white dudes kicking oh, around because yeah. obviously the yeah. Russian remnants of yeah. what they did, yeah. raped and pillaged and far out. There's even like red-headed kids kicking yeah, around. Yeah, yeah, you see quite albinos a few. Yeah, it's crazy, crazy. Yeah. So how long was that first uh, deployment for? Four months. Um, and, yeah, as I said, we got to go see the villages. So I got to go to places I never went back to, um, real remote Pakistan border places, lots of minefields. Um, like I'd, we drove through a few minefields by accident and it was the locals that came out to tell us, hey, you're in a minefield. Old um, Russian ones? Yeah, old Russian ones. Yep. So not, yeah, not not modern, but just, yeah, there used to be a Russian base on that hill. So oh, this whole mountain's covered in mines, get off it. Um, <laughs> heaps of that. But like it's it's a good, you know, example too of your um, being immersed in an environment. Um where I remember one time towards the end of the trip, we got sick of the locals just like standing next to the car, watching you brush your teeth, watching you eat your lunch. It's just like you can't escape the locals for four months. So to go to the toilet, I would go into the minefield and just like because they wouldn't follow you. Be careful where I stepped because yeah. I knew that I could go have a crap in peace. Like it's it's like a that's how that <laughs> I've got to clip that. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of how that you know you just get accustomed to that risk. Yeah. Um, and you think you can mitigate it and so you have a shit in private, you're not going through a minefield. Yeah, I'm going to go to the toilet in private. I'll just go over these red rocks into that minefield and the kids will wave at me and tell me not to go. But I'd seen kids as well. Um, we One day we pulled up to have lunch in this creek bed and there's those little butterfly mines and mm. the Russians mm. used to scatter mm. out of planes and then they'd scatter them onto a mountain but it would rain and they'd wash down the hill and so they'd quite often gather in dry, dry creek beds. And I remember the – Patrol command, I park the car and let's jump out and have a jaffle or whatever. We're making naan bread sandwiches for lunch. And we got back in the car to drive off. And as the patrol commander gets back in, he's like, holy shit, there's a mine, like a toe popper beside my door. I've actually stepped over it three or four times, <sighs> I reckon. And we're like, oh, you know, it's like one of those holy shit moments. And, um, and so we're like, yeah, well, just be careful of that. Like let's drive the cars off without running it over. And as we went to drive off, the kids come down and picked it up because it'd have the actual mine on one side mm. and on the other side it just had this bit of plastic that would help it flutter down when it was falling out of the sky. So they'd pick it up by the non-explosive side and it also had um, a cumulative um, pressure effect. So if you touched it once, it would take up some of that pressure. You could then let it go but then grab it again and, and once you eventually touched it enough times – it would then detonate. detonate. Yeah. So they would pick it up and throw it at each other. <sighs> and they're jumping out of the way and another one would pick it up by this non-explosive side and throw it and eventually it just goes bang and the kids all laugh and I was like, those things are designed to blow your foot off. Like that's people that have grown up in war. Yeah, like, playing with tape Playing with landmines. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> so during that first four months, anything uh, significant happened? Any, um, any ticks or anything? No, no real ticks. The squadrons before us did, mm. um, but we didn't. Uh, we did run down a few guys. Uh, but I, you know, like I looked back in hindsight and it was kind of hard. You'd park them and put them on a helo and send them back to Bagram, whatever. Um, you know, I, a lot of the in, a lot of the instances where that happened, I look back on it and I think, oh, I actually think they were crooks. Yeah. More so than just they were actually. Local yeah, they might have been Taliban last week, but yep. now they're just crooks doing yeah. 
the wrong thing. Um, so that's why they're carrying guns. That's why they're carrying radios because they don't want to get caught doing the wrong thing. Yeah. So they organise it all. Yeah. So we 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 um, apprehended a few guys. Um, drove to some amazing place. Spoke to some amazing people, and and uh, and came home four months later. I think the one of the things I really remember about the trip was how cold it got in those mountains towards the end of our trip. I think we had like a minus. 20 or minus 30 Fuck. day we woke up um, and I remember my mates in the first squadron that went saying, yeah, we had a couple of those last Christmas, but the army hadn't caught up with cold weather gear yet. Oh, no. So they were like, hey, send us some puff gear over because it's bloody freezing, whereas we took ours with us oh, before we went. So we had all the good gear. Yeah. But I was like, this place is epic. Like it was hot when I got here. Those soft jackets when they called yeah, 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 well, we had – um, that was all the, all the rage back then. Pants it? and mountain yeah. boots and um, you just couldn't sleep in your sleeping bag beside the car. I, I would have a swag with a big winter weight sleeping bag in it so you could get under canvas and some blokes stayed in tents and it's just freezing. The conditions warranted it. Yeah, right. So you do four months. As you said earlier, mate, you kind of – your career become a bit of a stepping stone, you know. Yeah, you eased into obviously each, what was to come. Each job – and up to this point, absolutely, we got more complicated with assets available and and the importance of the work that you were doing as to where, you know, where's this reconnaissance report got to go to and, uh, you know, what assets have we got to get it? And so, like, the jobs got slowly more complex uh, and the enemy threat slowly went up for me. So I was lucky in that regard. Yeah, right. So you get back to Australia, mate. When's the next rotation? Yeah, you got back to Australia. There wasn't another rotation. There was, that was at, it. At that time. Yeah, gotcha. Um, so, so 2002, 2000, 2002, done and dusted, everyone's back. That Afghan job was pretty good. Um, apart from our friend Andy Russell, we've yep. come through pretty unscathed. Uh, so he was killed on the first rotation, was yep, it? Yep, yep, yep. Uh, a, few, a few blokes had been injured, a few blokes had been in, in ticks, so the units got some good experience yep. from it. Um, but 2003, I, I did – exercises, uh, I think I went back on team for a bit of it, did uh, exercises to New Zealand. and So you, you guys thought that that was the end of the Afghan war? That I, was, that was I it. did, yeah. That was sort it. of, yep. yep. Well, guys deployed to Iraq. Iraq. Well, so Iraq yeah, kicks yeah. off March 2003. Yep, yep. I didn't go to Iraq, yep. that, that first piece. Um, yeah, I went and did mountain, did some mountain, introduction to mountain warfare in New Zealand, and random training activities. Just back things. into the training back cycle. Back into the cycle, yeah. Far out. Uh, Solomon's kicks off, I'm pretty sure, 2003. Yep. Yeah, there was a um, few random things that year. Um, sort of towards the end of the year, I was like, well, I think I've done the army. I might get out. That's about 10 years in. Uh, yep. Yeah, I'd yeah. done six years in the regiment, I think, four years in one hour and change. And so I was like, well, I might might go back to – might get out and go back to Tassie. Yeah, so I sort of was ready to pull the pin. My SSM at the time in his – wisdom, I think, he sort of went, um, well, what are you going to do when you get out? And I was like, I didn't know. I didn't – never planned to do 10 years in the Army. I've got no idea what I'm going to do when I get out. And he goes, well, I'll organise your posting. And so he organised me a posting to be Carter staff at a reserve unit. Go back, you'll um, have a couple of years to sort your life out and discharge at the end of that into a good job, you know, do whatever. Uh yeah, and maybe he was a bit even a bit smarter than that. He's like, this guy's not done yet. I'll give, I'll, yeah, I'll give him yeah. some extended holidays, um, and he'll come back. He'll want it. I took, 
I went back to Tassie on a two-year posting. In that two years, I took long service leave. Um, so I did a bit of half pay, went and worked with my brother and father building houses for about 10 months, I think, um, on, you know, whatever you got half pay from the army, my long service leave. And then I was at the end of that and I was like, ah, oh, no, I, I'm going to go back. Did you? Yeah. So I went, returned to Perth in the late 2005. Was well, that after two, that's two years? So yeah. two-year posting as a into this chalk unit. Yeah, yeah, it's training stuff. And it was just obviously he knew this SSM SSM knew that you yeah. still had that fire in your belly. Those you just wise old a, yeah. yeah, that's it. <laughs> wise old Buddha. Yeah, he's dragged you. You finally gone. Fuck it, I'll go back. I'm, I need to. Yeah, and that, that, those it. guys were like, you know, have a good life. Be yep. great knowing you. Yeah, and off I went. Um, but you know, it's yeah, never really fully scratched. And how'd you go slotting straight back into the unit? Oh, you don't really ever slot straight back in after being gone for a couple of years. So I got sent to the training squadron uh, and was posted to our mobility cell. And so from the mobility cell that I was posted to, this is now 90, uh, sorry, 2006, um, I would help run all the courses for the Rios. A couple of them I had to run myself, as in be the the, the guy organising ranges and all that, but most of the others I'd just go over and help as a instructor. Um not only was did they have another instructor to help train the new guys, but I was able to come get myself up to date with any of the changing and emerging TTPs and, um, you know, and get my eye back in on the range and things like that. I mean, I didn't get much range time up down in Tassie, so um, just like get back on the tools and sort my gear out and that it was a really good way to go back, I reckon. Yeah, and what, sorry, what year was this, 2005, six? 2006. So Afghan yeah. is back in swing again. It has started again, It's yeah. back, uh, obviously, for SASR and 2 Commando. Yep. And then uh, the regular Army, 2007, I believe, is their first right, six, late six, 2007, yep. I think. Obviously, that's probably sparked a bit of flame inside your gut again, going, fuck, here we go, we've got some more work coming up. Yeah, yep. Um, I was kind of like, you know, I – I haven't finished with this stuff. I, I, well, I think I was probably like, oh, this is, I am, this is what I am. I'm a soldier, I think. Yeah. And, um, and I don't want to do anything else. And so I'm going to go back and be a soldier with my mates. Yeah. So off I went. Yeah. What squadrons did you end up going back to? Three squadrons. So you go to three. Oh, I went, so the training squadron. Yep. For 12 months, but and then, then went back into three squadron. three squadron. Yeah. Uh, when is the next rotation in Afghanistan? The, the next year, 90, so, uh, 2007. So 2007. Uh, again, mate, the regular army's been in a uh, couple of commando deaths that year. Poppy yep. Pierce, um, trooper Poppy Pierce was killed as well. When it, what, yeah, before I went, I knew it was was going to be different. Like as much as um, someone that has been fully immersed in war, I suppose, knows it's going to be pretty serious, I was wise to the point that I'd had a bit of a glimpse at what war zones were like and I knew what operations were like and I knew what it was like to – um, be fully committed to your job. But now my mates were coming back from that late 90, 2005, 2006 trips and been ambushed here and there's all these guys are lucky to get away with their lives and the locals that some of the locals we're working with got killed and it was like, yeah, right. So just listening to the stories and understanding the operational environment, going back, oh, this is a lot more serious than it was last time. So you get back in, mate, same deal though, running through the LRPVs. Yeah, we flew back. I flew back into Tarankot, so, yeah, which was the yep. first time I'd yep. been there in uh, 2007. And they went, yeah, there's the cars. Go find the bad guys. Keep them away while we build schools and bridges, basically. Um, we need you to push 
push the Taliban back. Well, the, we were calling them at the time the anti-coalition militia, I think. We need you to push them back, push them up past Chora, get them out of here. Yeah, right. So, mate, run me, I guess run me through that first time of getting outside the wire and, you know, in the vehicle and yeah, push, we, push back the Taliban. Yeah, as, we as went out say. and did a um, nursery patrol, I suppose, and uh, we've now got a bit of new technology, you know. We've got these swabs that we can check That's right, yeah. for explosive residue yeah. and we've got a, a bit more Gucci kit here and there that blokes have been trained up of, but they've never used it in the operational environment much. And so I remember we did this nursery patrol, drove out of TK and – You got a JTAC this time? Uh, we got guys. I think yep. we got guys trained to be JTACs, yep. Um, I'd done uh, the course that got canned in the end. It was the FAC course, I think it was. So it was like the step down from a JTAC, but you could – it was good training. I came here to do yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, did you? Yeah, right. Um, and we jumped in the cars and drove out of TK. There's no bad guys out there, so just go over there and – you got a five days to, you know, shake out patrol. And we're like, oh, well, we'll conduct a vehicle checkpoint here on this road. And we run a vehicle checkpoint and half a dozen guys get out of the car and all test positive to explosive residue <laughs> on their hands. And we're like, so is that like fertiliser or are these like dudes, <laughs> ID facilitators? What's the go? Like it was just like that real weird we're back and – or I'm back after being away for a few years and, and this seems real serious. Uh, I th- we had our first decent contact maybe a couple of weeks in, I think. Yeah. And how big – like, what are you running, two two cars again? No, no. Bigger? No, bigger now. Yeah. I don't think we operated Four, five, less six than a cars, troop. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. We would drive around in a troop. Quite often we'd pull up in an area and teams would Dismount, go, go yep. off to clear things or yep. whatever, you know, chase up bad guys. But um, we didn't sort of – you didn't insert as a patrol by yourself and – Head off for a couple of weeks out in the out in the woods. So, how was that first time? I guess uh, having rounds coming in. Yeah, it's just Dif- different. It's different vibe. Yeah, different, very different vibe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I think I never even now like over the years. I suppose it's an infantry interesting topic that I've discussed a few times. It's like people are like oh, that's, you've done like a lot of military stuff in your life. Like, is it scary? And I often answer the question, well, to begin with, I'd try and think of a scary moment to, to reply mm. to the answer. It was like, oh, when this guy shot at me, oh, that was really scary. And I kind of look back and I'm like, it's, it's a bullshit answer because I never really felt scared. You don't feel scared. And I think that's a testament to the training, training. that I'd had the yep. 10 years prior. Um, I know I was scared because I can remember um, a pause when you shouldn't have paused or I can remember your hands trembling um, or, you know, all those signs and symptoms of shitting myself. Um, But you never felt – I never felt scared. I don't ever look back and think I felt scared in that moment. You, you, I tried to solve problems like, you know, I've got to move. My weapon stopped. This is not a good spot. What should I do? I'm in the open. So you all, I think with the training that we had, um, or at least I felt, that you were just, your mind was always busy trying to solve the immediate problems that you had. It didn't matter that they were life-threatening problems. Um, That's what the military does best. Yeah, that's what the military does best. Somewhat call it brainwashing. They get you ready for it. Yeah. um, And, 
Yeah, do, uh, yeah. And sometimes, memory. yeah, I look back and on a few instances and I'm like, I wish I had have acted faster. Yeah. Um, but I'm still here today, so uh, every time I had to act fast, I suppose I did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly right. Yeah. But that, you know, that's an age thing as well. Because you look at yourself 10 years prior and you go, fuck, what, oh, was, yeah, the, what was I doing? The wisdom and, that's it, and yeah. understanding of that high threat environment is um, is phenomenal for people that have been in it for a while. Yeah. And it's a lot of people that have been in it. So how long was this rotation? Um, well, for me, yep. four months. <laughs> yeah. So let's get on to this, mate. Obviously this – so up until this point, what – you're just going out, uh, pushing out, pushing back. Yeah, we're, is this just in that uh, in that AO of Orsgarn Province, or are we pushing? Yeah, no, we didn't leave Orsgarn. Yep. We did. Um, well, maybe we did a couple of ops that were two or three weeks in the cars, but um, they would have been the long ones, I reckon. Yeah, we did a, an op where we went up right up past Chora. Um, you know, nearly a week week and a half's drive up, and stayed a couple of days, and a week and a half drive back, and. Uh, you, we were pushing right into the enemy areas where the enemy had freedom of movement. Mm. And so, um, you know, we're getting rocketed and we're getting shot at and we're trying to, you know, you spend a lot of your time trying not to get yourself in bad spots where the enemy have got the upper hand. So, you know, overnight in an afternoon we'd, you know, move locations and set ourselves up so our heavy weapons uh, had were in – Places where that where they would, you know, outgun the enemy type thing. Mm. Spent a lot of time doing that, but then we'd have to go down into the green as well because that was our job to get the bad guys. Yeah, 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 right. So there's still a bit of driving around, but a bit of, a lot of jumping out of the cars and patrolling from there. Um, yeah, yeah, because I think well, lots of skirmishes up in that time in 2007 before obviously cruising up the Chora, there was no. Patrol base, what's that, uh, Kudos? Kudos was, didn't exist. Nah. That was two, that's when I went there in 2008 yep. that got built. So for you guys, that, that you know, that Baluchi Valley, that was quite a bit of a – Oh, yep, that was it. Yep, the yeah, Baluchi Valley. Yeah. That's quite a – There's nothing bit of, up there. Bit of a choke point. Nothing. And, yeah. Yep. Yeah, we, we did that activity that I was talking about. It was just like push up that valley as far as you can go. Yeah, gotcha, and, right to the end of it. And so our troop went and – the commando company followed us like a day behind. And in hindsight, it was a dumb idea because we would go places and the valley's only so wide. There's only so many places you can mm. park a heap of cars. And so we would stop somewhere and the next day we would leave and the commandos would nearly be channeled to go where we were. It's almost like, yeah. And so while we were there, the enemy would move in, but then we'd leave before they did anything. And I, the, the commandos got shot up a couple of times and I think it was probably – Due to they know exactly somewhat where they're due to go. that, yeah. like the enemy were like, "Oh, there's coalition down there," and they'd come down and would leave, and the they'd know, fill the in. SRVs and the Unimogs would roll in. Yeah, so just setting a bit of a yeah. pattern all out the valley. So we were learning, like, yeah, of course we mate. were learning. Yeah, we, these guys were trying to kill us, and we were trying to work out how to get them without them doing it. Yeah, so, and obviously just on that, like, how much did it change from 2002 since you were last there to 2007? You know, obviously this is. T- Two different areas oh, yeah. as well. Yeah, massively. Yeah. Like the locals wanted nothing to do with you. In and in regards to the SASR TTPs as well. Uh, they were changing, but yeah. they were like evolving Evolution. in that yeah. when I got there, they, we need to evolve. Otherwise, we're all going to get killed. Um, so we were evolving it. 
at that time. Yeah. I think. Yeah, right. Now, mate, up until your bang, was there any other IED strikes? Uh, no. Our unit never had any strikes. I don't think um, – I don't think the commandos did either. I don't think the army had any. Um, but we'd on foot I'd encountered a few IEDs. We had a skirmish one day with a guy digging in a daisy chain of artillery shells in front of us um, and he was just too slow. Like we got there before he said it, I suppose. And so it's like this half dug in massive IED. Um, the, the Dutch had hit, hit a few. I think, been ambushed a few times. Um, but we, yeah, we hadn't really, there was a lot of chatter about it, but we hadn't really hit one, I don't think. Yeah, yeah, mate. Well, let's get on to this day, mate. Obviously, run us run us to it. Yeah, well, we went, um, it was literally like, hey, this is the last job of the trip. We're all going home in a couple of weeks. We want you to go up um, Kazurizgan, right up to, into Kazurizgan and, uh, and there's an American base there with like 10, 10 Americans on it and some Afghans and they're actually getting like smashed. They're getting attacked regularly. The enemy have formed up in uh, platoon-sized units like frontal assaults. They're getting indirect assault daily and they're like go up there and see if you can clean some of those bad guys out. And so we have no other means to get up there than drive. So we drive up and over the mountains and down the road and then we operated out around there for, um, I don't know, about a week or so and uh, commandos came up and did some big company sweeps up valleys and we went in before them and did some overwatch on the hills and had some success and got some bad guys. And um, and just before this, for me as well, uh, I'd been the patrol to IC for the whole trip but my team leader had hurt his, hurt his back and so I was like, you, you, you can be the team leader now. Um, I was pretty much qualified. I'd done my PCs course, I think, and I'd done sergeant's courses. I'd just not been promoted. I was still to IC. And, uh, but when he went out of the field, I got another very senior guy to come to the patrol, which was awesome. He's probably more senior than me, but he's like, well, I'll just fill in this tail end Charlie for the last couple of weeks. And, and I, like, I was able to then bounce ideas off him, which was excellent. We went up, did these few jobs and, and got some bad guys and but it was time to go. It was time to go back to TK and the only way to get back there was to, to drive again. And from uh Kazarizgan township to back to TK, there's like one road down the valley past Mirambad, I think it is. Yeah. And so you just drive down that one valley to get back and the commander's like, We're actually taking this road. Um because we've got more vehicles and it's a bit bigger and there's like one other road and it's up over this little goat track over the mountains, which was the way we'd gone in there. And so, well, we'll have to go on that road to get back. Um, we don't really have a choice. And up until that point as well, I'm like most of the time it was kind of decisiveness and speed and like, you know, I've got a few traits that I think kept us out of trouble most of the time. And it's like, well, if we just go for it before anyone realises – what we're doing, we should be fine, We, you know. And probably the main concern was full on, you know, the whole troop getting ambushed. Um, I said to the to the troop commander, I think it might be a good idea if I take my team on foot the night before, so we'll patrol right through the dark, right through that night hours, through and out the other side of town and clear it and make sure it's all good 
and then the next morning you guys can drive the cars down the, the road. We've cleared. We'll jump on board on in our cars uh, on the back and then we'll shoot over that mountain in that sort of one daylight hours. And that was the plan. The plan didn't really go to plan, yeah. <laughs> as no good plan ever does. And um, we got some messages come over the radio sort of mid-morning. Hey, stop there. We want you to go down in this village. There's a high-value target there. Go down and chase them around on foot. And because we're not really very reactive jumping out of cars and people are watching us drive up and things like that, we didn't really – they didn't catch anyone that day. Um, there were plenty of bad guys there. Like there was probably a decent bad guy there because the hills were covered in spotters, you know, all just a bit out of range. But um, – then by the time we jumped back in the cars, it was now sort of lunchtime going into early afternoon. And as we drove, went to drive over the mountain pass, we busted vehicles. I think we broke two or three, which was starting to become more and more common because the old LRPs were just so old and the terrain was just pretty harsh on an old car. So then we're stopped on the top of the hill, concerned that the enemy are putting ambushes in in front of us in the valley below because we still had quite a few kilometres of valley to drive through before we got, or, you know, sort of re-entrance to drive through before we got to the next big valley where we could move out into the open and get some space from the green and things like that. And, but we were stuck on top of this hill, concerned that the enemy were in front of us. And so, again, I said to the boss, well, what, my cars weren't broken. It was other teams. While they goes fixing their cars, I'll push my team forward. At least we can clear you know, a majority of the road down the hill um, until we're getting out the other side. And he's like, yeah. Looking back, I think he's a good troop commander. He, he kind of like looked at me and thought, oh, that, yeah, okay, you can do that. Um, here's your control measures. And none of them I kind of expected. But in hindsight, I was like, yeah, well, he was just a bit concerned about his junior team leader, you know, bull at a gate. But um, so he's like, don't go past do this, do that, don't go past this grid line as a, you know, no further than. And I was like, oh, yep, no worries, that's good. So we drove down and cleared the road until I got to that spot on the map. I was like, I think we're here, just stop here. And we waited there for a few minutes, I reckon, um, just sitting in our cars, one behind the other. I mean, we got a creek line, dry creek line on our on our left and 10 metres away on the other side of that, the, the hill just rides up. On our right-hand side, it's about the size of an open football field, just flat, nothing, just dirt. But on the other, you know, 100 metres away, there's another hill rising up. And behind us, we've got the mountain. We've just driven off, so it's big behind us. A couple of k's winding down this small re-entrant, we get into the valley proper. But we're just still waiting now for the rest of the troop to fix their cars and catch up. While we're sitting there, not for very long, a, a bloke, an Afghan, comes walking out of the dead ground on the road that we're parked on towards us but sort of snakes out from downhill coming up towards us. And he's not far away. Like, he's only 100 metres away or so and I'm just sitting there in the front of my PV with the machine gun on his chest with the driver sitting next to me. So he comes walking out um, from the dead ground in front of us about 100 metres away and we're just – the driver and I are just sitting there watching him. I'm assuming the gunners in the turret just sitting there watching him and he's sort of getting closer and closer and I don't know how far. He's like 60 metres away now, but he sees us. 
And like you can, it's one of those, you know, pivotal moments, you know, decisive moments where I can still remember the look on his face where um, it, there's just like su- sheer horror and surprise that, holy shit, like he must have been thinking to himself, they weren't meant to be this far yet. Um, and so he's like looking at us just standing there and he's got a big like Afghan clothing and, mm. and everything, but he's got a big box in his hands, which straight away I've gone, what's going on with that massive box? That's sus as. No one walks around the desert with a box. Um, and he's looking at us with surprise on his face. Like he's just been caught with his hand in the cookie jar. And then he bends down, like kneels down, puts his box on the ground in front of him and kneels down. And in my head, I'm like, he's like he's doing his shoes up, trying to do his shoes up or something. I'm like, that's even more sus than carrying a box. They don't have laces on their shoes. What's <laughs> this guy? <laughs> they have slip-on shoes. What's yeah. this guy doing? <laughs> um, and so then he kind of, it's like all in slow motion. I don't know how long it took. He stands up and picks his box back up and like looks at us one last time and then just a mad left turn and just starts speed walking off into the sort of the flat footy ground area that's just dirt. So he's got about 100 metres to go before he hits that little bit of a hill and he could go over that hill and I don't know where that goes. And I've, I've like got a gun on him and I'm like, that, that bloke is sus. He's a bad guy. He, I can't see a gun though. And I turned to the driver and I said, mate, you watching this dude? And he's like, yeah, that guy's sus. I'm like, let's go get him. Like, so the driver, um, you know, starts the car up, puts her into gear, takes the handbrake off. And as he takes his foot off the clutch, like he'd done, you know, a thousand times, you know, 10,000 times that trip and the car rolled forward, it rolled 30 centimetres, if that. And that was just the next thing that I remember is the dust, like just being fully engulfed in dust because those open cut Mm. vehicles, it was just everywhere. I couldn't see anymore. My whole world was grey. And the next thing I remember after that, like I – I actually remember immediately as soon as that dust went up, I was like, holy shit, I've just been blown up. Like it was the very first thought that popped into my mind, this is not good. And then the next thing I remember is I've got this visual picture, even to this day, of the car. Like I can see the whole car. Why can I see the car? Like I'm meant to be in the car. And I was looking back at it. I was airborne, I reckon, or I was. And I'm looking at the LRPV and fully loaded with fuel and ammo and everything, they're about seven, we had them at about seven ton. It's like a couple of metres off the ground. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> like that car's not meant to be two metres off the ground. Um, I landed and tumbled down into this creek line. And by this stage now I'm looking back at the car and the car's come back down and landed on its wheels again and it's sort of bouncing. And I'm thinking to myself, if this is a complex ambush, like if the ID was the start and they're about to start shooting at us, so I need a gun. And I remember looking back at the car and we used to keep our M4s beside the seat in a little bracket and um, I didn't – the M4 wasn't on the car, but then I actually spotted it lying in the dirt beside the car and I went to get up. I was like, I need my gun. I went to get up to go get my rifle and um, I couldn't get up. And that was like the moment where I was like, oh, fuck, I can't feel my legs. Why can't I feel my legs? I need a – and I'm still in my mind going, I need a gun, I need a gun. So I went to grab my pistol. I was like, I've got a pistol. I'll get my pistol out of my holster. So I went to grab my pistol out and um, 
it was gone, like it had been blown because I just had one of those little Phobus holsters mm. without, a, mm. without a break or anything on yeah. it and it had just been blown out. But it was on a lanyard so I pulled the pulled the lanyard, <gasps> my little yeah, yeah. handgun came up over a rock. It was like in the creek line behind a rock and it pulled out from behind there on the end of the lanyard. And so I just then sat there with my gun waiting for the trouble to start. But, you know, fortunately on, I think, in, in, in hindsight, which I didn't know at the time, unable to film my legs sitting in the bottom of a creek line, um, that guy had just put – He only just set them. He only yeah. just set them. Like he hadn't even finished yet probably and just like was was out of there. Um, and so while I'm sitting there, I'm like, is everything all right? That was oh, the, that was sort of when I remember my first teammate from the car behind running past and he was just running past it. Set security. Puts the security in on the high ground – Beside us, and a, you know, a minute or so later, a medic from the car behind gets to me and goes, "Mate, <laughs> wow, like you're all right." And I'm like, "No, mate, I'm not." <laughs> and so they just like bit of first aid. How many blokes were in your car? Four. Just so four. Yeah, yeah. So, so what happened to the other guys? The driver got banged up. Yep. So m- him and I in the front of the car both got banged up a fair bit, um, enough to be evacuated out. Yeah. Yep. Um, the guy in the turret stuck round, but the the fourth guy in the car was the engineer with the dog. Um, Raz was the explosive detection dog I had in the back of my car. Like probably should have used him on the road, but um, I was still going for that speed. And so, um, but then, and since then, so this is after the fact I've spoken to the um, handler. The bosses then said to him, mate, is your dog it's just been blown up? You've just been blown up in this car. Are you still? Is the dog good to go? Are you good to go? Uh, and and spins. He's just like, oh, I'll go test the dog over there in the, you know, see if he can do some casts. And he sent the dog out and did a few casts and like brave as, like, yeah, I'm, we're good to go. <laughs> so after he got blown up in the back of my car. Straight another vehicle. He, no, no, he didn't no. go on another vehicle. He started casting the road. Oh, did he? Down. Because they still had the this dog was just working. Of, the dog was working the road, and so Fucking he hell. pushed forward, um, working the road for a bit. I don't know how far he went. I wasn't there. Mm. I was in a Blackhawk. Yeah, gone heading to Kandahar. Um, but he's out working the road, and then, like you can imagine, the dude's a bit frazzled as well. Like it's a big day. He's already been blown up yeah. once. Um, his dog sat at some point after that. You know, I'm not sure how far a K or two or something. Uh, and he's like, oh, is is that another ID? Or is the dog not sure? I'm, you know, so he called the dog back and the dog came back and then he sent it out again, like, like a bit of a confirmatory. And the second time uh, the dog went out, he must have sat on the pressure plate oh. because then the second ID went off, killing the dog and and injuring spins and blew him over. Uh, but oh, still to this day, mate, I take my hat off to those engineers, you know. how they, I mean, they were brave before that and I saw them braver afterwards too, but phenomenal. Yeah. That is a – that – fuck. Well, what's that time frame be- between that first IED and second one? I don't know. Hours. Maybe a couple of hours. Yeah, maybe. Maybe not so, even. So I'm lose sure. a dog yep. and he's injured again. Yep. Is he medevac that time? Uh, well, they were trying to get back to TK anyway, so yeah. they didn't send a helo in to get him. He wasn't. Fuck He'd been God. blown up seriously like twice, yeah. but he had no mad penetrating injuries or just a mad, you know, probably a bit of concussion or 
whatever. Wow. Wow. Mate, shows you, you know, the... I think he went, I'm not sure, I'm pretty sure he went back for another trip after Oh, that. did he? Oh, yeah. shit. Yeah. i have to try and track him down, mate. Get him on potty. Yeah, he might do. Yeah. Man, it, it, but just back to the dog as well, mate. Fuck. That's... Yeah, Raz is on the like, rock down at the yeah. memorial now where the, all the dogs were that got killed. You know, I've talked about it on previous podcasts, how many, you know, lives dogs have saved. Yep. Obviously, we've lost a few dogs. Similar yeah. thing they've set on pressure plates, et cetera. And, but, fuck, it's, uh, I guess, better a dog than yeah. you know, well, a, he, a soldier. I mean, I'm not sure if it was his first deployment. Um, Raz had found a lot of stuff yeah. that trip. Yeah. I mean, he Amazing. was just purely uh, find explosives. But he found a fair bit of stuff. Yeah, yeah right. So, quickly, um, in regard to the IED, what, do you know what – what uh, hit the vehicle? Oh, they reckon it was probably a pressure cooker. Yep. One, what do they get? Like yeah, 10, probably 10 kilo. 10 kilo yeah. in them, and it was remoted. We didn't, like there's no. Oh, it was remote? Remote? No, no, um, remoted to a pressure plate. Oh, gotcha, So the pressure gotcha, plate's gotcha. in front of the ID. Yep. So that when the wheel runs over it, their, their theory is that the ID will be not under the front wheel. It will be under the middle of the car. Right in the middle, yeah. Um, but because the ID wasn't huge, um, just enough to lift the seven-ton car off the ground, it, the fact that it was remote, like back a couple of metres, was probably good for us because it just lifted the whole car up, you know, and back down again. Yeah. Um, so the ID went off like right under the gearbox. And so then probably that gearbox saved, it. saved yeah, wow. us in the car. Yeah, if it had a, if that amount of bang had gone off under the front wheel, well, that's it, yeah. it would have killed the person probably. Yeah. Well, I had, it. I had uh, Damien Tomlin someone. And obviously lost his legs, but I think his was an anti-tank mine, so it yep. was right under the the wheel well. Yep, uh, which obviously fucked him. And, and they, I reckon, they reckon, blokes have told me that they reckon the second one was bigger. Was so it? maybe the enemy TTP was, I'll get down onto that road that I know they're going to use. Yep, I'll set the dirty, quick, small one up first, just in case they come down, and then I'll go down the road a bit further and set up the big one. Um, and so our car hit the small one and. And the dog hit the big one. Yeah, right. So at this stage, mate, you're medevaced. Nine lighters in. Helos come in, picked you up. You still can't feel your legs. What are you? What's going through your through your mind? Are you you're conscious throughout the whole state? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Didn't, yep. didn't lose consciousness. So what's going through your mind? Um, well, I remember the medic going, like the operator going, are "You all right?" And I I had heard stories that that guy hit an IED the year before, and I was like, "Mate, no, I'm not." Okay, like you know, I remember saying you to him, know, you, know, like, yeah. you know, I'm not okay. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, Yeah, that was pretty big. <laughs> so they, he gave me a couple of pentrain whistles. I think. Yeah, green whistle. I was like, No, I'm just not in a good way, but I'm no, not bleeding out anywhere or anything like that. So they put me on the helo. I remember the medic on the helo going, Do you want some morphine? And I'm like, sucking on my pentrain whistle that he's doing nothing. Yeah. And I'm going, Nah, mate, I'm good because in my mind I'm still like, get me back out there, coach. Uh, and he's like, mate, I'm giving you some morphine. Like I can tell. And so he dosed me up and it that didn't help. Like I was in pain. And what was worse was once they got me to the hospital, they're like, we just need to do some scans and, you know, make sure your back's not broken and all this. And, and the manipulation, like even just on a stretcher where I'm not moving around, just putting me in and out of machines – to this day, is like still some of the worst pain is it, yeah, right. I've ever felt. Is this from TK? But, but it's upper body. Well, TK, they flew me to TK and they tried to treat me there, but the hospital, as good as it was, wasn't good enough. No. Um, Background. So they literally went, 
get him back out to the flight line and get him down to TK. I remember one of the worst parts was in TK, they had the little ambulance and they could fit um, six stretchers in it. And so you're like lying on a stretcher with the next stretcher above you hitting your nose and getting me in was just torturous. <laughs> they flew, you know, got me from the flight line into the RAP, you know, this is not working, back out to the flight line, threw me to Kandahar and down there the machines were heaps bigger, heaps more impressive, like hospital was phenomenal. Um, and then, uh, you know, like 10, hour, 10 or so hours of, you know, scans and testing and x-rays and all these whatever the doctors do and the doctor eventually came in and he goes, uh, good news, Mark. You should, like, should get the feeling back in your legs. Yeah. I think it's just swelling. And the way he explained it to me then was um, just a shockwave going through your body. It's just like mushed everything. And it's like massive swelling in all your muscles and, and everything. And he's like, that's just swelling on your spine. Um, take, you know, it takes away that sensation in your legs. Once the swelling goes down, you should be fine. And I, I was. It was, wasn't that long. I think it was like 24 hours later I was uh, getting wheeled out of the hospital in a wheelchair, but I could walk You'd on crutches. I could yeah. feel oh, legs. Could walk, I could yeah. walk on crutches. Yeah. Yeah. And that was it. Back to Australia. So I went back to Australia and did rehab. I think maybe it took me about four months or six months or so. Yeah. Like yeah. I did nothing for a month and then I'm – like I'm ready to start PT. I'll, I can go to the pool. I can get on the exercise bike. I can work with the physio. Or you know that go then goes for another couple of months, and it's like right, I'm I'm good. I'm ready to hit the gym. I mean, for the first six weeks, my body was purple, just from the um, internal bleeding. Yeah, like just in your arms and legs. Like I was just all purple. It was pretty funny from the back of my ankles to my neck, but no actual penetrating. Injuries was the was the good part. Yeah, shit. Far out. So at this time too, this is what the end of 2007, a couple of commandos have been killed, Trooper Poppy Pierce has been killed. 2008, obviously casualties start piling up. Yep. Uh, especially uh, just wounded, wounded in action. Uh, yeah, the next the next deployment, um, a couple other mates of mine, a friend of mine that did um, the selection, did selection in Rio with me, they, they drove over an ID as well. Yeah. Um, and their fit picture, I had it in – uh, that last point and shoot, yeah. like missing everything from the driver and the the crew commander forward, like the motor's gone because their ID <sighs> went off under the motor. Yeah, and, and and mostly those guys were fine. A couple got dis- discharged with injuries, I think, but a um, couple stayed in. Yeah. yeah, right. So where's your mind at? You're doing a bit of rehab, getting got, back yeah, into Yeah, got to get myself. Get fit, fight and fit again. Good to go to go back. Yep. So you get eventually get fit again. What's the What's the deal? Yeah, got fit again and got put on the next deployment. Um, so this is your third rotation to Afghanistan? Yeah, 2008. 2008. And I had a slightly different job, so I went back over and it was um, – it wasn't that kinetic sort of gunfighting role. So, you know, I think it sort of slipped under the radar mm. a little bit with the docs probably, you know. I was like, yeah, I'm good to go, doc. And he's like, you know, touch your toes and, yep, you're good to go. Uh, and so off I went. Mm. Yeah, right. So 2008. Back, in, back into the system. 2008, yeah. did another deployment. 2009, I think I was back on team. Yep. Again. Um, and back to, just sorry, back to 2008, Donaldson gets his VC. He well, gets that, his VC that year. Uh, up past Carazora's gone. So. McCarthy's killed, signal of McCarthy's yeah. killed. I was there. I think we'd, oh, yep. we did the outer cordon for yep. it. 
just near Kudos. Yep, another ID. Yeah. And it was um, it was then Harry Moth's written about it in his book as well, um, that everyone's going like, we've got to get rid of these cars. Mm. Like we can't. Got to fly just, everywhere. Yeah we, yeah, we just can't keep driving around like this. Yeah. Like, we've got to adapt. Same as two commando, mate. They obviously yeah. started flying everywhere. Yeah, we all did. Fuck. We had to adapt. And obviously a couple of fucking yeah. fallen angels, obviously, for the two commando yep. side of things, poor bastards. And, uh, yeah, so obviously that trend, everything changes for you guys. So you do that deployment 2008, 2009, you're back on uh, Tag West. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And they, like, I think at that time they were building. That yep. was right around the time that commandos are going to stand up their Tag East and this is, you guys take care of this stuff and they'll take care of this other stuff over East. And so um, it, the Tag role had changed heaps from from then to it had, was in 2002. So we got to do um, – we had more scope to do m- more good training because we didn't have to be – our recall wasn't so stringent, I suppose, because was we weren't the only ones holding it anymore, I think. Yeah, yeah. So it just just break it down for, you know, even blokes like myself, you know, obviously got East uh, 2 Kamado. I'm not sure what East. it is now, but um, – Back in, I guess, your day, it was just a – Yeah, well, they, they sort of mirrored each other a little bit um, with a lot of – around that 2000 and – 10 onwards with a lot of very similar skills. I mean, both units had the capability to rescue hostages, which is a massive, um, it's a massive deal to go from, yeah, we've got a unit and we're able to assault that building. So we've got a unit that's able to assault that building and rescue the people inside. I mean, that's a, that's a whole next level of, of training to be able to do that. But both units at that stage were now starting to hold that. And so then, the higher up army were able to then delegate bits off the mm. sides of it. Well, you you guys do that and you guys do that. It's kind of the same, but you guys take care of this weird bit off that side and you blokes take care of this. And so there was a few other different roles. Did they ever train together? No, never. No, I don't But obviously. So. Well, we did on random courses. Yeah. Obviously subject courses yeah, and stuff. Yeah, course, we're doing yeah. infantry cor- uh, subject courses, sub two for infantry and if you might be on a JTAC course or you might be on a language course, but not, hey, we're going to do this exercise. Yeah. And we're both going to be clearing the house, yeah. same house yeah. at the same time. We didn't do that. We, I, probably even exercises what we both went and did. But I suppose it's into, to some degree, it's like going, hey, we'll get Charlie Company 2RR and and Charlie Company 1RR to assault the same hill at the same time. Yeah. Like they haven't yeah. really – Trained up together and yeah. work together. They, all don't, the they time. don't like each other either. Yeah. Oh, there's a bit of rivalry, <laughs> <laughs> but um, it just it kind of wouldn't have worked. Yeah, 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 yeah. A lot, of, a lot of people. I mean, in Afghan, for example, there, I did heaps of ops where you know I'd sniper heavy teams, and so we'd run Overwatch for the commandos yeah. doing, you know, attacks through sweeps through villages or whatever they were doing. Um, so, so we certainly worked together yeah. at times, but. Only if we sort of if they needed us to. Yeah, yeah, of course, of yeah. course. We like, you know, I think special forces in general, and especially us, thrive in small teams. Of course, yeah. yeah. So if we don't need a hundred blokes to do something, let's yeah, a job that can take six. Let's just get the six guys. Exactly, to do it. more yeah. more food as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah more yeah. food for you. Get a bit of mess, <laughs> <laughs> mate. Uh, so two thousand nine, you said a little bit of uh, back on that uh, CT side of things, black roll as they call it. Yeah. Where's your mind, mate? Obviously, your well, I, I even still like 
a couple of years after getting blown up, I was still like improving. It was quite phenomenal how weeks after your recovery is dramatic. Um, but years after you're still recovering, it's just not as dramatic anymore. But I would wake up, you know, and literally go to the gym and do a workout and go, I feel better than I did Mm. a month ago because it's just taking so long to retrain your body up, I suppose. I I was kind of like, um, my kids have moved back over over East and, um, I'm not a hundred percent. Like, I don't think I can keep jumping through windows of houses and this body armor is really heavy. Uh, I think I'll, I'll hang up the boots and go do something else. And so that's two mid to late 2009. That's what I did. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So that was it. You just like, fuck it. I've had enough. Well, you know, like I'll do something else. What, what, what's next? What's the next thing I can do? Yeah. And, um, I just happened to tell a mate of mine who was working in Afghan, I I think I'll get out. And he's like, Oh, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I don't know. You know, got any ideas? And he's like, yeah, bloody oath. Come work for me. Um, come over here. And so, I was like, oh, well, I suppose I could do that whilst I figure out what I should do now. I'm an adult, and um, and just went to Afghan and consulting, consulting, yeah, security contractor at the embassy, um, drive the diplomats around town, do recce's and and whatever they needed me to do. Look and after. how was that for you? Obviously, the money was better. Um, it kind of was, but you got a better day rate. Yeah, but you only got paid. Yeah, when, when you were job. when you were there. Yeah. So um, it wasn't. I didn't blow my mind. Like, a bit more relaxed. Yeah, I, I actually think I don't think I've ever made as much out of the military as I did in, and only because you're on that full time wage. Yeah. You got paid whether you're on BRL or That's it, yeah. whether you were doing six months in Afghan. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the, I mean the pay was good. The pay was good enough when I was at work that I could work six or eight months of the year and not worry yeah. about, about not getting paid for four or five. Mm. Yeah, right. So how long did you contract for? Um, I did the, I did it for a bit under two years, a bit over 18 months, I think, and uh, the Army, because I was still a reservist. Yeah. And the Army rang up and said, hey, do you want to do a, another deployment? <laughs> we you know, we could do with the help, basically, which was great. I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm up for it. Like, um, And again, it wasn't that for going back, uh, it wasn't a full-on kinetic jumping out of helicopters and kicking doors down. It was, they, we need some, you know, experienced hey, mines yeah. and things like that. And I was like, yeah, I'm keen. And so, um, and went back and, and got to be in charge of a little, little section and it was great. Um, did that for a little, did that for six or seven months. So you just signed a continual full-time. On, yeah, just signed on. I remember signing on for six months. We'll only yeah. need you for six months and signed on for six months and then went over, went to Afghan and then they went, oh, can you stay an extra? Three months, <laughs> yeah, it cost you. So sign on, like <laughs> sign another three month contract, and um, and stayed, did the trip, came back, and they just sign you back out, like just that's it, yeah. You come back, back to oh, you've again. you've earned two weeks of BRL, so your discharge date is on on this date, and so they just send you back to reservists again. It's kind of a bit weird because I did it a few times and jumping in and out. It's, so where were you living when you got out? Did you move back down? To, oh, Tassie. Back down. So Tassie, I'd fly yeah. to back Perth. to your Choco, that same Choco unit. No, so I stayed. I went to Commandos in Melbourne for a little while, um, just to go. Oh, I'll do something different. And um, but then when I they signed me back up full time, I was posted back to Perth, 
as a choco. Gotcha. Um, and then so then when I discharged after the trip in 2012, I was, they discharged me but posted to um, Perth as a choco. So how long did you stay as a choco? Um, well, because I was, I'd left my job, I went back and I was sort of cons- contracting and security work half-time and a bit of reserve work half-time as well, going back to Perth, working on selection and helping on courses and things like that. And then they said, well, we've got an empty spot um, for an Afghan mentor. Do you want to come back and do another deployment at the end of 2012 into 2013? And I'm like, well, yep, I'm over here. Why not? So signed on again. Another six months. For another six months and went back for another deployment. And that was jumping out of helicopters. and. So that was back to the kinetic operations. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're sending teams in, but by 2013 they're trying to send the Afghans in. Too, yeah, and so it's so a mentoring. I was mentoring with those guys, and we even did weird stuff. So we'd do, you know, days jumping out, you know, high risk arrest, kill or capture missions, jumping out, trying to catch the bad guys out of the helos. But then there'd be other random days where the Afghans are like, "Hey, we want to go into TK and arrest this person. Um, can you come? Because you can bring your radio and what? Just use yourself. Oh, I'd, I'd go with." We'd be pretty light on because yeah, there'd be just a couple of years, eighty percent Afghans, and there'd be me, and I'd take a Sig, and I'd take a medic, and, a, and an engineer. Uh, I might have, I might go on a bushmaster. Hey guys, we'll jump in a bushmaster and follow them. So I have a couple of six RR blokes mm, come drivers, with me. Yep. I, there was a, another couple of men, uh, mentors, so we'd try and stay in pairs if we could. Um, but plenty got into plenty of shootouts. Just me and well, in just in TK itself, just outside. Oh no, doing more the jobs out. We yeah. Catch plenty of bad guys in TK. Like it was really interesting from 2007 how we had pushed them out, sort of to Chora uh, and up past Mirambad and and down past Shawalikot. Like we'd pushed them out a bit. But then just with the reintroduction of you can't do night raids, you got to have 80%, you know, partnering force and all the restrictions that were placed on us by 2013. Back in again. They were back in again. Like we were arresting you know, IED facilitators in TK. At the Taliban hotel. Remember that? There was a hotel on the yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. there and fuck, yep. it was like notorious for Taliban to stay there. Yep. Yeah, it was, it was kind of a bit ridiculous and all. Crazy. It's like, and it wasn't because we weren't evolving to the operational space mm. or, um, or good at our job. It's just because the, the rules on the operational environment changed. It was just making it so hard. Yeah. To target. Far out. It just makes it hard, doesn't it? Especially, I think it was a lot of lot more KIAs, a lot more wounded in action when you move to more daytime operations. Oh, so you, absolutely. You know, yeah. The military pretty much owned the night at that yeah. stage. Yeah, uh, we had some really success. In 2007, we had some really successful, uh, not really night targeting missions, but just night patrols. We'd sort of go, we haven't been over there for a long time. Let's go and patrol through that you know, 2K stretch of Greenbelt at night and you'd catch bad guys, like full-on tooling around with long guns and chest rigs and hanging out, having chores. You just couldn't do that. Like they just don't – they had that freedom of movement that you just couldn't – there was absolutely no way to um, target because you weren't allowed. Yeah, yeah. Just onto this mentoring side of things, man, how was the Afghan th- – these are Afghan special forces, not the uh, – I worked with a few different – Units, yeah, 
Um, one in particular was awesome. I'd go with them by myself. Like I trusted those guys with my life. Oh, that good. Yeah, yeah. And on a few occasions, I mean, there was one day um, that we'd been got off the helos and there'd been a bit of a skirmish when we hit the ground and uh, one of my Afghan mentors, because I've like, got my guys, my, I've got 10 guys and me, and we're off on the, you know, the, the western flank a bit, you know, we're off on the right flank of the actual assault force moving into this village and one of my Afghans comes up to me and goes, sort of, Mark, Mark, and that's the end of his English, grabs him by the shirt, come with me, and then I'm just like following him off. I'm like, well, what do you want to show me? Where are we going? To the point where I'm like, I'm a bit uncomfortable. We're getting too far away from the rest of the troop. Mm. And, you know, but f- happily follow those guys off. He sent me into a building and there was a, um, a civvy in there that had been hit in the crossfire. So it's like, you go in there, you know first aid, you treat him. So it's- we treated him up and Kazavacked him out and sent him off to hospital. But, yeah, I'd, I'd follow those guys. They'd look yeah. after me. But yeah. then there were some others. There was a couple other units. I was saying that we worked in pairs normally as the mentors. There's a couple other units that I wouldn't go and do that with those guys. I'd be like, hey, come with, come with me, mate. Like, we've got to go over here and check this stuff out. I'd go with those guys and me. And a couple of standoffish situations where you're arresting some bloke and his wife won't let him leave the house and then – She's attacking you and then the police are getting angry at you because there's a woman hitting you and it's like. <laughs> yeah. Fire. Just difficult situations. Especially during that, what, 2012, 2013. By that time, there's already been those uh, green yeah. on blues, plenty of, and we've yeah. lost, what, five, six, seven yeah. Australian soldiers have been killed. Yeah. And you're trying not to, um, you're trying to build rapport. You're trying to build trust. You're trying to not go, hey, mate, I just, I don't like you. I don't trust you but we've got to get this job done. So you like, a lot of the time it's like your long gun's just slung and if this guy draws on me, I'll just have to do my best. Yeah. Pistol. Yeah, <laughs> fuck. Oh. But it, well, it's a bit dramatic, I suppose. You know, like I was happy with all yeah. – I was never in a situation that I didn't think I could handle. Um, if I thought it was a shitty situation, I'd take a mate with me. Um, and nine times out of ten, if I was working with the crew that I loved working with, well, it, was, it was great. Where are we going? Yeah, yeah. those are good. That's awesome. So you do that six-month contract, mate. Army signs you off again. Yep, bit thanks of, for your time. Yeah, thanks for your time. <laughs> Might give you a call in a year or two. Here's your two-week bonus and off yep. you go. Um, yeah, right. And then back to Kabul, just turned around. I literally, think I literally flew back to Australia, dropped my army gear off, got discharged and got on a Emirates flight. Back yeah, right. To, back to Kabul. So back to, an, back to uh, the embassy. Yep, PSD staff. Yeah. How long? What year was that? Sorry. Um, so I sort of finished up with that and I'd started doing a lot of random stuff around then. So I finished up in 2016 with the security work. Um, but between sort of 2013 and 2016, while I was still flying in out of Kabul earning a living, I was, I'd started my trekking business in Tassie. Uh, I actually went back to Afghan and helped as a project manager to build a hospital in Kandahar and I did a couple other random things but started to do more expedition guiding. It's more accurate than security work where I was taking people overseas to do some research or they just wanted to go and do some adventurous sort of travel stuff. So this is point assist. Yeah, and it was – That's what it started off as. Just through my own business. Yeah. Well, it started off as – Safety and security. 
Yeah, it's, well, it's, I started in 2009 yep. because I needed a company to work through yep. as, a, as a contractor. Um, but then of I, course, yeah. I was back home, you know, eight, six week, eight weeks on, two, four weeks off. What am I going to do on my four weeks off? Oh, I might start taking people hiking in the wilderness in Tasmania. So, oh, I'll use my own company for that. And so then it was this weird thing where it took people hiking, but it also took me doing security as well, doing security work yeah. in Afghanistan or random places. And yeah. then uh, we started doing, I started doing a few other random ones like me and another regiment mate took blokes, took people, ran a trip to Mongolia motorbike riding uh, and went to Vietnam and Cambodia doing research and hiked, went through Israel and hiked through there purely as an adventure travel trip. Like and a guide. So, yeah. Safety security guide as well. I, I'm yeah. good at travelling. Like yeah. Well, the army made me good at travelling. Like <laughs> yeah. I'm, yeah. Situational awareness. So, yep, no dramas. I can pay attention. And um, and so I can sort of stay safe and know how to prep and know what to look for and know what actions on we're going to need for that sort of trip and keep people safe or as safe as you can keep them in uncertain environments. Like yeah, there's always accidents and – People always come unstuck, but, you know, how do we deal with those things as well? So did a, did a lot of that work, um, even right up to COVID, where uh, pre-COVID I was doing heaps of adventure travel and lots more trekking in Tassie and then started doing my veteran projects mm-hmm. just before COVID, 2019. Uh, but then when COVID hit and my business was kind of on hold a bit, I went back and worked uh, for a mining company, a, a green energy company, uh, as an expedition guide, so taking researchers and community affairs advisors to remote areas to talk to villagers about potential future projects and things like that. It was like – Was that around the world, is right it? Right up my alley. Yeah, yeah, all over the place. Yeah, right. Yep. Yeah, travelling – That's cool. Travelling COVID was – Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Love a good quarantine. Yeah. So <laughs> as you spoke about, you know, uh, just before COVID, you know, the veteran stuff started popping in. Where does that come into your mind? You know, obviously this becomes it, – essentially it's digital marketing slash content creation in a way. Oh, pre – so pre that, the first one I got was the Tasmanian state government literally went, hey, we made a promise to give some funds to veterans to do something. Are there any veterans out there with any ideas of what they'd like to do? And I could see um, a lot of non-veteran businesses in Tassie because it had to revolve around tourism and the wilderness and training – and there was a lot of non-veteran businesses going, oh, we'll take that money and train veterans. And I was like, I, I actually, this is like a good bit of coin that veterans could use. I think we could run. I'm already working in the tourism space and I'm mm. working in the wilderness space. Why don't we? Why don't I just run something through my company that veterans can do? And so we came up with a um, an experience that's based around showing people all the skills that they got given in the military, which can that are transferable. So not those hard skills like stripping and assemble a Mag 58 or, you know, the finer points of dot points of ambushing, but, you know, all that mental toughness and living in the field and um, leadership and communication skills and all those other core skills that people have. Let's show them all those skills that they do get. Because when I first got out of the military and I was a patrol commander in the SAS, I remember someone asking me, oh, what skills did you learn in the military that are transferable? And in my mind, my immediate response was, oh, I don't think any, like there's not much use for demolitions in <laughs> Tasmania. Um, and it wasn't till I sat back and thought about it, hang on a minute, like there's this whole other area of skills that 
because I've had such diverse experience in the military, it's hugely transferable over just adaptability and, and you know, dependability and, and all, you know, there's, they're endless, like in name heaps of them. And so we'll show people how to do that and we'll show veterans how to be adventure guides or what the adventure industry is like. Sometimes it's a bit of a um, wake-up call for some people because the, the tourism industry as a guide is a very difficult place to earn a living um, just because they want contractors and you only get paid when you're away from home, you know, hiking Kokoda or Larapinta or something like that. And then you, you pile on top of that, you can, you're competing against university students that are, you know, just wanting to do something out of year 12. So you, the pay is not great. So if you're a, um, 35-year-old getting out after 15 years in the military with a wife and two kids, like it's kind of a difficult space to earn a living from, but it can be done. And so we talk about if you're committed and this is really what you want to do, how you can do it and how you can use the skills you got to do it. So we started off doing that. That's what then led COVID shutting down a few of those events that we had planned. And so we set up the Veterans Photo Exhibition to um, – to run while we're in COVID that we were able to do, which was really good. Initially we were getting veterans adventure travel photos and a photo from their military service. But what I found was the public, the general public didn't care that Mark Doreen had been motorbike riding in Mongolia. Like they wanted to see Mark Doreen's um, Afghan, photos. Afghan photo and not just mine, but yeah. everyone's like, they wanted to see veterans' photos and they were the conversation starters. And like the very first one I ran, I think I had like, you know, 10 of my photos and 20 of other people's photos and the public were just so inquisitive. We only had it on display in Hobart and they were blown away because you're not scrolling mm. photos on a phone anymore. It's printed out and it's there in your face and um, they were reading the captions and hearing the stories from the veterans and, you know, telling them about their deployment to Timor or Iraq or Afghan. And I found the public inquisitive to the point where I was like, I love wilderness photography and I love photography in general, but this is what the public wants. We'll just show them and, you know, the experiences and tell them the stories from veterans and what they've been through in service to their country. Um, And that's when it sort of started to, to take off a bit. Yeah, it's kind of like the warm oil, but on wheels. Yeah, it moves on wheels and, and very different. Bit so, more in touch. Yeah, a lot more in yeah. touch. So we, it's not like I'm not trying to tell you about the conflict. I'm trying the personal to experience let the from that veteran yeah. share, share his experience. So it's not filtered through the media. It's not. It's not filtered through a museum. Just like a podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's not filtered through a museum. Um, I purposely don't collect photos. Uh, from anyone pre-Vietnam because the stories, I think, can be diluted That's, yeah, too much whisper, when they're told. I do collect yeah. stories. So I've had um, photos and, and experiences given to me from the partners or or sibling children of veterans, but I tell their, the children's story. What, you know, what do they remember about their, their veteran parents? So – it's not like, hey, we're telling you the story about what happened at this battle in World War Two. It's more about what this veteran felt in this moment. Why does this photo mean so much to them? And so you get 
you quite often don't get as many. Um, you do get some epic stories, you know, people getting blown up and, and shot at and, you know, I call them crowded hours. Like they're the, those moments in life that change you as a person. Um, but even now, you know, whether you call them decisive moments or experiential densities where you get a whole lot of experience in a really short amount of time, makes you change how you see the world. Um, I love them because it leads into conversations around, um, so what is a positive experience? What is a negative experience? And so I tell the story of getting blown up to any, sort of, you know, non-military person or talk about my friends who I remember fondly who aren't with us anymore because they got killed in Afghanistan. Everyone immediately thinks it's traumatising and that it will be a negative experience, whereas that's not the case to me. Like a lot of the experience are positive because I've taken the time to sit back and learn how those experiences have made me a better person. Um, and, yeah, I'm not physically as good to go as I was when I was younger. I mean, age is always <laughs> going to eat away at you, but getting blown up and – Doesn't help. And, you you know, injured and your legs blown off in war is not good either. But quite often if you take the time to understand the the knowledge you've learnt, you know, it might be just about life and your purpose in it or it might be um, it might be what you've learnt in another area, which can, you know, once you can outweigh the positives, can outweigh the negatives, like it becomes a positive experience. I say to everyone, like a positive experience doesn't just manifest itself because you want it to be positive. Like if you've been injured in war and you're not better off for it, it's a shitty negative experience but if you're able to go well I've learned this is what I've learned out of that and that's worth more than the health the fitness I had before the incident then that decisive moment crowded hour whatever you want to call it is a positive experience to me yeah exactly mate exactly it's almost like that old uh, SSM wise wise yeah, and old yeah yeah they know shit <laughs> mate, could, from experience that's it mate um I'm new you can learn from books um go to university I mean, it's important. Before you go and do climb mountains, yeah. it's always good to, you know, get a bit of training on the best way to climb mountains. It might prevent you from falling off the mountain. But you can't just read books. No, the I think you're an expert. Like, practical. Um, that, that's knowledge. You can get knowledge out of books, but you can't get understanding out of books. It's not until you can combine the knowledge with with the experience that you're going to get wisdom. Yeah. That's that's my belief. On. I'm with you, mate, because yeah. yeah, you get a lot of those uh, counter-terrorism experts these days on the news and yep. they're like, mate, <laughs> yep. you're a geek. I mean, and a lot of those guys are uh, very well read and they've had a lot of conversations. Um, conversations, that's about and, it. And that's great. They probably have some amazing insight and knowledge. Um, but, and, and that's good. Also, we don't want some dude that's just been shot at heaps. Yeah, He's, yeah. He might have he needs some knowledge. a lot of experience, yeah. but it's lacking a bit of the, the knowledge. But the, the expert is the guy that's got both. Yeah. Exactly. Mate, uh, yeah, right. So, mate, we've been chatting for almost two hours and 15 minutes, mate. It's been epic. Been fucking good, <laughs> mate. Yeah. Mate, just to hear yeah. your story. Obviously, now this this is the man behind the, you know, these veteran uh, expos and 
uh, everything that's going on. And ever, I think everyone's seen it all across uh, Facebook and Instagram, obviously. And you've got many more planned. Yeah, it's um, next year, August, September, October. We're going to yep. be travelling around the country. Oh so, yeah, right. I'm like a, like super a excited about that. Yep. Yeah, I'm still collecting photos yep. and stories yep. from veterans. Um, and then I, I'd, I've got a heap now that I'd actually like to still show again because they've only maybe been seen in Tassie or Canberra yeah. or something like yeah. that. So I, I've got an opportunity now where I can collect some more and also do a best of. Like Would you do artifacts of, as well? Um, Would you? I've I've had a lot of people say that as well. It's you could do the artifact, but you need the story. Well, like I think from, yeah. From if, the if, veteran, if it's a yeah. you know a picture of a dude like yourself with your with your mufti hat. Yeah, you know yeah, well, I mean? if you, yeah, that had just put that next to your couple of Anzac days thing. ago. Yeah. I did a um, here's twenty five items from my military career. Like, oh yeah, it's still um, one of the most followed Is that, things you know, I did on the internet because yeah, I just posted like footballs and knives and yeah, Dixies and shit. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like all stuff that I've just still got in a trunk. Yeah, at home. Yeah, yeah, right, but. The stories behind them too. People exactly, exactly love to hear them. far, far yeah. out. The, the pack of cards from Baghdad that had the oh yeah, yeah. I've got a pack the, at home the top too. Fifty yeah. people they wanted yeah. on and stuff. Saddam. Like, yeah, Afghan money. I've got yeah billions of dollars in Afghan currency. At home, I think. <laughs> You're rich. All outdated and not used <laughs> anymore. <laughs> Mate, um, yeah. Again, just for the listeners. Everything you post, uh, especially when it comes to these veteran uh, exposures, I'll put it all up on my socials as well. Yeah, so thank you. See it. But, uh, mate, just to tie off the podcast, a couple of final questions. Mate, uh, first question, what advice can you give to people just to keep on keeping on, complete any goal they set their mind to, just to crush it in life? Yeah, I mean, um, don't underestimate the power of, uh, of that contemplation. So experience is the best way, I believe, to improve as a person. Um, but you just can't do go do stuff and think it'll just make you better. You got to do stuff, and then you got to learn from it. And the learning from it comes when you dissect it. And how did I perform? And what could I? What went well? You know, you sustains, improves, and fixes. And what went well and what didn't. Uh, and then the cycle's complete when you go and get another experience that's a bit harder, that makes you work a bit harder, um, and just keep doing. Like keep doing things. Like you'll get to the end of your life and you'll have a lot less regret. Yeah. Yeah. And just, just quickly, mate, I think one thing we missed, just going back to you being a DS, obviously seeing what it's like for a, you know, young dick to go through selection. Obviously you went through it, become a DS and you understand. So any advice for any young dig out there that's wanting to get out West or maybe to commando to get past, you know, through the barrier, through the selection. through yeah, the Rio. Well, definitely for those guys. But, um, I do a fair bit of writing. I think I might even nearly have a mm. book one day. And one of the chapters in it, um, commit to the experience. Like doesn't matter what it is, whether it's big or small, whether it's a two-day mountain climb or whether it's the SAS selection course. Like if you're going to go do it, go do it and see it through to the end. And, you know, if you get, you know, try not to get broken on it, but if you get broken on it and that's what puts you out, well, that's what puts you out. Um like I grapple with the quitting sort of the mindset when you decide to do something like see it through. See it through. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. do it. Yep. Just do it and get it done. And there's a whole lot of areas around that that you can uh, that you can work on to build that determination, you know, why am I here and yeah. what got what got me doing this in the first place and, you know, 
having good people around you, like there's a million things that can help you. But if you wishy-washy, I might go and look at this and I don't know if I'll make it, like you won't make it, Just especially when you do anything hard. Yeah, yeah. and I, it almost – it transfers into, you, you know, when we leave defence and move into the civilian world because what I've noticed, a lot of guys, even like ourselves, turn into introverts – it's a period where you just go through, you know, I want to go see, you know, your mates will go, come out boys, let's go out the boys. And you're like, oh, no, um, I've, I've got something else to do. You don't have nothing else to do. Yep. Just get out. Yeah. Get out, get out and go do it. Yeah, I, I can't comprehend blokes that get out of the military and think that their best years are behind them. Like it's just that was a stepping nine stone. times out of ten, it's the first half of your life. Exactly right. Um, yeah, you mightn't be able to run 12 clicks and pack and webbing like you used to. But you're a lot smarter. Yeah. You're a, you've got wiser. a lot more understanding yeah. and you're a lot wiser. Like you can – there's a lot of amazing stuff you do. And I would just say to guys, just do something. Find th- that next hobby, which could be just simply that or, you know, even better if it's per- – you've got there's some real purpose and you've got passion for it. Yeah. And just give something a run for 12 months and, and you know, whether it's – whatever it is, playing an instrument, bloody – Whatever. Mountain climbing. Yep. Um, doing up your four-wheel drive for – a crossing of the Simpson Desert. Yeah, that's it, mate. Yeah, yeah do whatever pick, you want to do. Pick a project and yep. start a podcast. And immerse yourself in it. Start a podcast. <laughs> yeah, like, do, do whatever. Get involved in some storytelling. Exactly. Like, like, you'll improve society. Exactly. Like, there's real purpose in that. Yeah. There's real purpose. I like commend you on what you do because no, there's real purpose in this. Yeah. You, I think sharing real stories, the stories Unfiltered. from the first responders, from the people that have lived the experience, like it makes society better. Yeah. It builds empathy in everyone and, and understanding. Yeah. Yeah. Mate, uh, second question now. We kind of spoke on it before. What is the plans for the future? Yeah, well, I'm, as we've been saying, I'm not getting any younger and I'm sort of toting a few injuries around. And so I'm like looking – I've spent a bit of time over this year, 2023, going what does the future look like for me? What's my next project? And I don't know how much longer. I've still got a couple of mountains in me maybe, um, as long as my pack's not too heavy. But I can't keep doing that forever. What's – what am I going to evolve into next? And I think it is this space. I think it's this storytelling space. I want to make uh, – I love my photography. I kind of have since the Army showed me how to take photos 20 years ago. And so I went to TAFE and did some video editing courses and some interviewing courses. And so I might evolve into that space to be able to, like you do, um, allow other people to tell their stories mm. so that they can – they can share them more and, and I've been dabbling and getting better at um, some of my public speaking, which I find super challenging. I think as a military guy and you're not comfortable talking about yourself heaps, um, I found it challenging from that aspect, but I've enjoyed the challenge of it. And so I'll do more storytelling myself and giving other people the ability to share their stories. But I don't want to also in the future just focus on veterans because I'd like to gather epic experiences from anyone. Yeah, first that, responders. That's role, lived yeah. them. Yeah and, yeah, and, you know, any to me, anyone that's got those decisive moments in their life that they've contemplated and take the time to go, it could be a business thing. Business is a classic. Whenever mm. someone's business goes broke, their immediate default is oh, it's a failure. Well, getting those people to stop and understand what they've learnt from the experience um, might be the thing, stepping stone that sets them up. Yeah, start again. For future success, Yeah, whatever that is to them. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. So uh, I delve into that space. Yeah, so. yeah, mate. Stay tuned. I'll, I'll be following, <laughs> mate. Uh, third question. Now, tell us something uh, about you that people don't know. You know, like a guilty obsession, or you know, what are you? Oh. Full driving. Obviously, you like spending. Oh, money I love my dirt drive. bikes. Dirt and, bikes. Yeah. Um, dirt bikes are getting harder to ride. Um, right. So yeah, maybe I'll put my dirt bike in the back of my four wheel drive. You like the motocross, yeah. supercross on riding or? Oh, I love motocross as a kid. Yeah. Um, I was never really super good at it. More enduro. Like, did a bit of enduro riding and just riding by myself. But I never never really rode road bikes much. Um, it was more dirt bikes. Yeah. I don't know. Something that of not many people know is um, in the military I got a nickname, Gumpy. I got it when I was in um, one hour. I don't know if you've heard that before. No. And so everyone that hears it always goes, where the nickname Gumpy come from? Um, and it's not super exciting or anything. It was literally like they, the guys in my platoon struggled to give me a nickname and then one day I was eating a Gumpy bar. It's oh, like yeah. in the military yeah, we call yeah, candy chocolate bar. bars yeah, or chocolate candy bar, bars, yeah. Gumpy bars and soft drinks of goffers and so you get the Gumpies and goffers to go to the range for the yeah. day. And I was eating a Gumpy bar one day at the range. It's Gumpy. <laughs> and I was like, well, let's just call him Gumpy. So that's where that came from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. No, awesome, mate. Uh, fourth question, favourite TV show, movie, what are you watching these days? I don't watch a lot of telly. Yeah, I didn't think you would. Um, You're a bit of a hiker. Yeah. I'm Adventurer. More of a instructional video on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, I, yeah right. I kind of smash the YouTube, but um, it's new photography skills or um, seeing other people climb mountains and things like that. It's a great resource. Uh, oh, I Sort of hit the Sons of Anarchy when I was oh, that, yeah. working that overseas was a, a lot. Um, and a few of those like that. I think I watched that Punisher one. Yeah, that was good that. too. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't watch He's got much. a good podcast now, John Bernthal. Yeah, I've heard of, I've listened to a couple of those episodes. I smash it. Well, that's audio books and podcasts. Yeah, the audio book is because I'm, I'm not a great with my uh, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Yeah. So audio books. Yeah, I'm the same. I smash them out. Um, all the time. Yeah, right. Dri- driving and podcasts. I love podcasts. Yeah, yeah. For the same reason, I think. They're just yeah. a shorter version. I'm going to I'll have to link you up with a couple of these. Uh... Oh, mate, Castaway. Had him on the podcast. He was on a lone TV show. Oh, yeah. Local yeah. guy. Lives here in Newcastle. So another mate of mine, I'll give him a plug, he's got a book out, Luke Richmond. Um, he's an adventurer and, and uh, they're mates, I think. Luke. Oh, there you go, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I just had a... Tutu SAS guy. Um, he was a Gurkha. Oh, yep. And then went, he was like one of the first two Gurkhas ever to join the SAS. Yeah, right. And he's, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. he's Chris, uh, sevens, Chris, uh, Chris Darpa. He's the guy that did the video climbing all the mountains. Was That's a different another, guy. Guy. another guy. That's another oh. guy. Yeah, I definitely want to get him on. But Chris Darpa, I just had him on a podcast. And yeah, mate, he's the same. They're amazing blokes. Oh, mate, yeah. this guy does Mount Everest, and like, we talk about shits tough. and giggles. Like, they're tough. Yeah. yeah. Crazy. Mate, um, music, last question. Favourite artists, what are you, you know, you're cruising in the full drive down the down the freeway, uh, window down, Goldilocks out. Yeah, just, I like rock music, I think. Yeah. I mean, I listen to anything. My dad ACDC. Was, my dad was mad American country and western growing up, so I can listen to that. I don't mind a bit of bloody Ibiza sort of. Easy listening, chill yeah. sort of stuff. But I think my favourite was, you know, rock music. Yeah, ACDC, Foo yeah. Fighters, even a bit of Jimmy Barnes, you know. 
whatever. Was it with, like just in regards to music? You know, I know music is a, a big vital part, and especially a lot of military guys. You know, before you go ahead out on a job or something, some yeah. people just like to kick back and put their headphones in and listen to Taylor Swift and just get ready for it. <laughs> Mate, I've had a bloke <laughs> who I worked with who put Taylor Swift on before oh, getting no on the way. Hilo. Oh, Have shit. you ever heard that? No. No, he's a regiment bloke and used to crank it up in the ready room and the first time I'd heard it I was like, what, you know, like. Yeah, right. What <laughs> a mad dog. Yeah, this is, that's a bit like yeah. a bit of an anomaly. <laughs> Finally, he wants some tickets, mate. I'll, I'll yeah. get him sorted. I'll hit him up. <laughs> yeah, right, mate. Um, all right. Well, for whatever reason people want to find you or reach out to you, where can they find you? Yeah, I've. I've I'll put myself all over soldier soul. social media. So I've got yep. point assist, which is on social media, but that's going, that is more, um, it's kind of whether, whether it's on Instagram or, or Facebook or, uh, LinkedIn, it's kind of still my more professional. Um, here's, it's an educational piece. I think mm. point assist is, is everywhere, but it's more educational or you can just follow Mark Doreen, which is literally me. Instagram, Facebook. Around the planet. Yeah. Yeah. Instagram, Instagram is yeah. probably easier. Um, I like it more because you can just stick a picture. So, on. Right, yeah. yeah, I've even like looked at Twitter because um, X, it's called now. X, yeah. yep. Because you can just stick a picture on it and yeah. go, "Hey, I'm in Newcastle." Yeah. Um, and so that and yeah, YouTube. I, the YouTube's a bit harder though because you obviously it takes. But that's what you're going to start getting into now, isn't it? More yeah, YouTube, more content. editing and that. Yep. But um, yeah, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube. Yeah. Well, there you yeah. go. Reach out. Yeah, Mark Doreen or Point Assist. Yeah. Either or. Yeah, definitely. Both. Yeah, that's it, Point Assist, and definitely keep an eye out for the next exhibition and you can submit your photos. Yep. I'm sure there's – Yeah, the point and shoot, that all goes on on Point Assist. I'm sure there's plenty of guys out there with uh, photos that, you know, need to be seen. Yeah. This is what I want to get through to a lot of veterans' heads right now. This stuff needs to be seen. You know, some of it doesn't need to be seen, but oh. uh, majority of it needs to be seen. Yeah, the, those – and even the tough experiences, they need to be processed yeah. and, and like – if nothing else, that you're able to talk about your partner with it or show your kids yeah, and discuss yeah, it with yep. them. Um, yeah, they they are. There's a lot of Get the really stories purposeful, out. meaningful Get the stories, stories out, out there yeah. that you can share. They're good. Yeah, exactly. Mate, uh, again, really appreciate you coming into the studio and sharing the story, mate, because it's been absolutely hectic. Again, mate, we've been trying to line this up for months. Finally got it done and, mate, yeah. Thanks mate, for anything. taking the time, mate. I actually, with all the people that you've had on this podcast, I feel super humbled. There's some absolute legends mate, in that list. So keep up the good work. Yeah. yeah. No, I appreciate it, mate. Awesome. But, yeah, again, thank you. And, yeah, mate, we'll stay in contact and whatever you need and any help you need, Likewise. reach out to Izzy. Yep. Thanks, mate. Appreciate it. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Now, quickly, just before you go, I want to tell you about Three Zeros Coffee. Now, as you know, I like my coffee how I like my men, long and black. <laughs> However, lately I've moved into the cold brews. I'm loving it, obviously, because the weather here in Australia at the moment is quite hot. So what I've been doing is using the seasoned campaigner pour-over filter bags, literally rip open the packet, put the filter bag over my coffee mug, a few ice cubes, pour in some hot water, let it cool down, add a sugar or two just to make it sweet and... I fucking love them. Honestly, you get the kick that you need out of the caffeine and the taste is great. So if you want to get yourself a supply of coffee, head over to 30scoffee.com.au. From there, you can choose whatever you want. You've got the beans, you've got the pour over filter bags, got some merchandise. And just to let you know that a percentage of their sales is 
forwarded to organisations that support first responders. So while you're getting your coffee, you're doing a good deed by getting some of this money to the first responders and where it needs to go. While you're there, don't forget to use the discount code 3ZLIMITS. Now look in our buyer, you see that discount code, use it, get your discounts. So again, jump onto 3 coffeecomau and grab yourself a supply.